Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. World War One, the Great War, the War of Nations, the war to end all wars, if only that were true. Well, what a war it was, and 2018 is the 100th anniversary of its end. It was a war unlike any other fought in the long history of Europe. New technology, tanks, flamethrowers, fighter jets, poison gas, and more, and unprecedented in scope, over 65 million troops will be mobilized over the course of four years. Over 65 million men sent to fight. Think about that number. The war began a month after Austro-Hungarian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated on June 28, 1914, and his death did lead to the war, but it was so much more complicated than that. The origins of World War I were decades in the making, and we're going to explain those origins and the launch into four years of all-out continental war today on a special Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Time Suck loves the hell out of today's and yesterday's troops edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles. Hail Triple M. Hail our military listeners. All those who uh, died defending not only this country, but any of the world's countries, you know? It's a world war. Suck after all. You know, fighting on the losing side of history doesn't mean you you didn't die bravely. I'm Dan Cummins, suck master, the master sucker, cult of the curious curator, fourth leg of Bojangles, Lucifina's love slave, and you are listening to Time Suck. Turns out I really did have a blast in Columbus, Ohio a few weekends back. I, I called it correctly. Uh, recording this suck in advance of Buffalo shows, hope, hoping that weekend was fun as well. Hoping, hoping, hoping Nimrod watched over me. Uh, I'll be in Grand Rapids, Michigan this weekend. Shows at Dr. Grin's November 16th and 17th, uh, including my last live podcast of 2018 uh, on the 17th. It's going to be fun. Some shows already sold out. Very excited for Grand Rapids. And then Spokane. Come on, Spokane. Spokompton. Spokane. Vegas. I'll be at the Spokane Comedy Club November 29th, 30th, December 1st. 
Let's make it three years in a row of good times at that club. And then finishing off uh, 2018 in a club I haven't been before. Helium in St. Louis, December 6th through the 9th. Looking forward to seeing some of you time suckers there as well. Uh, and thanks for checking out The Suck on YouTube. Uh, also on Spotify. Also on SoundCloud. I think we're, I think we're everywhere. A podcast can be now. Uh, and, and even, you know, some, some places that other podcasts can't be. Like our own app. You know, uh, the Time Suck app on Google Play and, and, and at the Apple Store. Uh, thanks for sharing those preview videos on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Spreading the suck to, uh, to people who just don't get it yet with little 60-second glimpses of what we're doing here. And also, thanks for scooping up those Time Suck cha- uh, challenge coins. Uh, I love them. I love, I love the weight of them. That protective case, if you do want to take it off, I finally did figure out a trick. You, you got to pull on the, uh, the opposite plastic side you would think to pull on, you, the one without the little lip. I kept trying to pull the other one. It's actually, there's a little tiny groove you can find on the other side and uh, pry it off. Hope that makes sense. Uh, and, and thank you to all the spacers once again for your patronage. We're over 3,500 spacers as I record this new high. But I do know that this, uh, this new number allows us to give $1,000 to this month's charity. And this month's charity is another one run by Time Suckers, the Green Beret Association.org. And here's what they do straight from their about page. And I will have a link to them in today's episode description. Uh, it says, those, who, uh, those we seek to serve since the attacks of September 11, 2001, U.S. Army Special Forces have shouldered the heavy burden of carrying out countless complex missions worldwide. As larger conflicts have ended in Iraq and Afghanistan, the demand for special operations forces has increased. These warriors have suffered a high number of casualties over the years while maintaining a high operational tempo. The cumulative effect of sustained combat has increasingly strained the members of the special forces and their families. These operators struggle with questions as old as warfare itself. How can the human body be developed to absorb the repeated physical punishment of combat and still perform far above the ordinary? How can even elite warriors endure the cumulative effects on mind and spirit of extreme stress and continual exposure to death and destruction? How can the uh, impact of their wives and kids be prevented or healed? The answers will help determine how the United States fares in the long war against its adversaries and the Green Beret Association, a 501 tax-exempt national nonprofit serves and supports members of the U.S. Army Special Forces, Green Berets, and their families. We provide a range of programs aligned with the United States Special Operations Command Preservation of the Force and Family Program designed to address the fraying of the force after over 15 years of combat. Our programs contribute to the maintenance of mind and body, provide acute and ongoing support in resolving physical, psychological, emotional, and relationship problems before they become chronic, during times of tragedy, tragedy, excuse me, the Green Beret Association provides immediate financial relief, offers counseling and services to those left behind, and the special operations community. The Green Beret Association also helps warriors transition from military service to civilian life by providing career counseling, support, and mentorship. And I talked with Nick and Signe, the Green Beret, and his uh, fellow Green Beret buddies, military spouse who run this organization. Lindsay speaks with them a ton. Uh, we've, we've all had dinner and... Uh, Man, they're, they're just solid, just solid people. They're very dedicated to taking care of the Green Beret uh, Special Forces members and their families. So so thank you for your support, Space Lizards. Thank you for allowing us to support others. Doing a lot of good in the world. I uh, got a lot of show for you today. Holy shit. So much war. So complex. But I think I've simplified it without dumbing it down. Uh, it took me a bit longer to wrap my head around this one than most of the sucks. Uh, gl- glad to have learned a lot about a war I knew very, very, very little about and, and hope you enjoy it. As much as I have. Time now for an epic suck on World War One. So, so what events 
led up to the start of World War I. Uh, the Germans would eventually shoulder most of the blame for this war. But if you read between the lines, I think it's easy to see that the dirty, dirty, savage, subhuman Polish people were actually behind it all. I, I just, I cannot stress enough how evil Polish people are. And yes, I am married to one. I am only married to a Polish woman because I feel like it's my duty uh, to keep an eye on at least one of them for the good of you know humanity at large. Find out where they're holding their secret meetings. Uh, did you know that the original recipe for pierogies calls for both puppy and baby meat? It's half baby meat, uh, three-eighths puppy meat, one-eighth kitten tears, uh, and of course, flour, uh, salt, uh, pepper, and some kind of some kind of Polish witch's blend of devil spices. Uh, but seriously, enough about monsters. Let's talk about real humans. Uh, let's talk about the events that led up to the start of the war. Uh, one of the main ingredients or the uh, of the origin of World War One is nationalism. European nationalism was on the rise at the beginning of the 20th century. Nationalism based largely, as it often is, in, in racism. You know, uh, that age-old mentality of our people are wonderful and your people are filthy dogs. People in my country, people who look like me, are incredible. And people who live in your country, people who don't look quite like I do, are inferior. And, uh, and I'm still not joking about Polish people, whom I, whom I, do, whom I love. Uh, this is for real this time. Nationalism was like a religion for much of Europe's imperialist powers and, and a lot of smaller uh, countries as well at this time. England, Spain, France, Germany especially, though been spreading their various doctrines of colonialism around the globe for centuries by the beginning of the 20th century, spreading their nationalistic battle cry of we're the best, everyone else, uh, second-rate tops. And then nationalism turned into militarism as the leaders of various European nations intended to prove that, you know, their army was the best. You know, they wanted to prove their might, really display on the battlefield how superior they actually were, prove that they're the most powerful, you know, they have the best soldiers, the most advanced weapons, the most industrialized military uh, we've talked a lot previously about the Cold War mentality here in the suck. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of suck episodes have revolved around the Cold War, and you know about, about how in the first few decades following World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union were obsessed with showing each other up, obsessed with proving that they were the best. You know, their system of government was the best. They had the most fit, most attractive, most intelligent, most talented people, the best trained soldiers, the most powerful weapons. Well, now imagine that same mentality but spread out amongst numerous European nations with borders actually touching one another instead of being across the world and with centuries uh, old histories of fighting one another. Another ingredient of World War I's origin uh, was the romanticism of the idea of war. The major powers of Europe had gone through a contextually, uh, you know, long period of peace leading up to World War One and the Balkan Wars directly preceding it, which began in 1912, two years prior. Uh, when you look at a major timeline of European war, there's a 40 plus year period of peace prior to the Balkan Wars. Uh, while colonial powers had fought in other wars around the globe, there hadn't been a major European war fought on European soil since 1871, uh, the end of the Franco-Prussian War. Now, the Franco-Prussian War was fought on the heels of the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 when the Germanic state of Prussia uh, unified numerous German states into a new and powerful European empire led largely by Prussian general and soon-to-be German chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Uh, Otto von Bismarck. Uh, and Bismarck knew that a good way to further unify the, the new empire of various German states was to stoke animosity towards you know, a long-term rival France. And then when a Prussian prince was offered the throne of Spain— France protested at being surrounded by the Prussians and declared war and 26 various states of the German Empire unified to defend themselves against France. And the war lasted less than a year and was really just over in a, in a few months as far as major battles. The Germans began a, a siege of Paris two months after the war began 
And then Paris just kind of hung on for a while, endured months of famine before eventually conceding victory to the Germans. And in the end, France conceded the empire to the now uh, unified German empire and also conceded to paying the Germans uh, in indemnity, uh, financial compensation for having caused the war. And then there was peace, uh, at least as far as major conflicts fought on European soil for decades. And as we learn over and over and over, uh, we meat sacks have very short memories. Uh, what's that quote by uh, George uh, Santayana, that 19th, 20th century Spanish philosopher and poet? Uh, Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So fucking true. Over and over and over. Same patterns reemerge. Uh, like I know for, for me, cheese starts well. Cheese begins great and then ends in a violent internal assault on my non-lactate enzyme processing digestive system. Uh, and then as I sit sweaty and angry in a hotel or airport bathroom stall, I, I tell myself, that's it, fuck cheese, fuck milk, fuck milkshakes, Alfredo sauce, uh, fuck clam chowder. You know, da damn you delicious cream. Uh, but then after a few weeks, I forget all about my defeat in the bathroom. And I only remember the sweet, sweet taste of cheese. And I punish myself all over again. Well, that's kind of what happened in Europe. You know, they, they remembered the, the sweet taste of easy victories, you know, and they forgot about all the painful defeats and, and the real cost of war. Uh, the young men and women growing up in the last decades of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century hadn't tasted war in their lifetimes in Europe, and they, and they idealized it. Their leaders were children when the, when the last war hit their lands. The, the second generation removed from the Franco-Prussian War began to romanticize battle as an important test of manhood, a rite of passage that their parents had missed on because their parents were cowards. You know, they didn't want to miss out on. Uh, they thought of war as a, as a way to demonstrate the strength of your nation and the superiority of your culture. Government officials, academic elites, even uh, important religious figures, the clergy essentially became pro-war. Uh, there was a popular book published in France in 1912 called The Young People of Today, written by young French intellectuals, Henri Massis, Alfred Detard. Uh, and they talk about the lack of courage and cowardice of their parents for not fighting the German Empire after France's defeat in that Franco-Prussian War. They felt that their parents were afraid of the Germans, but their generation was different. Nah, we're not, we ain't scared. We ain't scared. Uh, they wrote, war, the word had taken on a sudden glamour. It is a youthful word, wholly new, adorned with that seduction which is eternal bellicose instinct has revived in the ears of men. These young men impugn to impute to it all the beauty with which they are in love and which they have been deprived by ordinary life. Above all, war in their eyes is the occasion for the most noble of human virtues, those which they exalt above all others, energy, mastery, and sacrifice for cause which transcends ourselves. Man, I did not have that as a young man. Uh, I remember when I was in high school uh, in the U.S. Actually, actually, it's the end of junior high, I guess. Uh, U.S. was gearing up to enter the Gulf War in Iraq at the, the end of 1990. Uh, so I was an eighth grader. And, and I first heard someone mention the possibility of getting drafted. And, and obviously that didn't come close to happening. We know that now. And, and the U.S. military annihilated the Iraqi army in just a matter of a few months. But... You know, no one knew that beforehand. I remember just watching the news and my grandparents and you know, I had dinner at night. I remember just thinking about how, like, what if the war turned into some Vietnam type situation and then I could get drafted? And my thought was definitely not, fuck yeah, let me go prove my manhood. Woo, manhood, yeah. No, I was scared. I, I had no interest in dying young. I was terrified. Uh, maybe I was just less brave than the average middle schooler. Uh, that's, that's very possible. Uh, I've always been a warrior. Uh, and I, and I <laughs> you know, And, and I don't know, I, I think that maybe that's why I have so much admiration for veterans. I think, I think we admire noble qualities and others that we don't necessarily feel like we have ourselves. And, and I just admire the courage and selflessness, selflessness, excuse me, of soldiers more as I get older. 
Anyone who served, regardless of whether you or not you enjoyed your time in the service, man, I hope you're proud of the fact that you that you didn't just think about signing up, like you did it. You know, you did you did that. You you uh, you actually served your country, man. Uh, but I digress. Uh, also in 1912, there was a book being written in Germany uh, by a deeply re- respected retired general, the son of an even more respected general, Frederick von uh, Bernhardi, uh, called Germany in the Next War. And he wrote, from this standpoint, I must first of all examine the aspirations for peace, which seem to dominate our age and threaten to poison the soul of the German people according to their true moral significance. I must try to prove that war is not merely a necessary element in the life of nations, but an indispensable factor of culture in which a true civilized nation achieves the highest expression of strength and satisfaction. Wow, man. So this dude was a uh, cavalry lieutenant in the Franco-Prussian War. He, he actually knew what war looked like, and he was advocating for more. Uh, to be fair, though, he'd only fought a quick lopsided victory. His only experience of war was, you know, quick, decisive, dominant. Uh, another ingredient— of the of World War One, the buildup to it, imperialism. Think about how the British and the Spaniards, for example, had approached colonialism. Uh, it was an attitude of furthering the glory of the crown, subjugate the filthy heathens living in the Americas, and force them to join our clearly superior culture. You know, they acted like they were doing indigenous people a favor. You know, we're introducing you to a better God and a better way of life. Well, that same attitude existed amongst uh, Europe's monarchies. Your country and culture will be blessed to have us come over, take take you over, and replace everything with our superior culture. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, another ingredient of World War I origins is propaganda. I listened to a great course's lecture about the origins of World War I, and Professor Robert L. Weiner, yeah, yeah, Professor Weiner, tough break, uh, talked about how in the decade prior to the outbreak of World War I, European kids in many countries were being taught in school to fear and hate their neighbors. Good old, good old propaganda. It's very effective. Tried and true method to uh, prepare the young to to hate, you know, people that they'll be then uh, sent to kill. It's probably why I get so angry when I think about modern mainstream media pushing spin instead of truth. Uh, some guys from this month's charity, GreenBeretAssociation.org, got me to download an app called One American News Network uh, that I use for keeping up with what's going on in the world. It's today's headlines without today's opinions. This is not a sponsor, but just yeah, One American News Network. I just think it's really cool. Uh, it's amazing how short the the articles are in this app because there's no spin. There's just, hey, this is what happened. This guy said this, and uh, these people said that, and then it just bounces out to the next article. Fucking love it. Uh, another ingredient of World War One, especially popular in Germany, was uh, what's become known as the short war illusion. Now, this is a feeling that your nation is so much more powerful and dominant than, you know, than, than, than any others, that any military action you commit to, it's, yeah, it's going to be fucking easy peasy. It's going to be swift, decisive, and glorious. And why wouldn't the German Empire feel that way? You know, the Franco-Prussian War, the Austro-Prussian War uh, had been quick and decisive. They felt like most of Europe was just theirs for the taking. You know, uh, we'll, we'll march, you know, we're just going to march around Europe, let everyone know what the fucking plan is, you know. Uh, Germany, uh, German, it's the new language of Europe. The Deutschmark is the, the currency of everywhere. Hope you love sausage because it's for breakfast and dinner now. And Oktoberfest is going to be fucking just off the charts. Holy shit, it's going to be big this year. Uh, the German Empire at the time extended to France in the West, uh, Russia in the East, much larger than it is now. And, and Germans had put enough thought into dominating Europe that they'd actually developed a plan for attacking both France and Russia and expanding their empire way back in 1905. You know, about a decade before the war, it was it's called the, the, Schief, the, the, the Schlieffen, Schlieffen, there we go, the Schlieffen Plan. Uh, the Schlieffen Plan, named for its original Count Alfred von Schlieffen, stated that any war for Germany would be a two-front war. This plan would ensure a quick 42 days to be exact. I love that they have it down to the day. 42 days. It's going to take to uh, kick France's ass. 
And then we go uh, mobilize our troops towards Russia. And then, you know, we kick them in just a little bit, uh, I don't know, a couple months. You know, no big, no big deal. No big deal. I just, uh, I just, I just love how confident they were. Just, we'll break into France and those France bastards will not even bother to raise their guns. They'll stay inside our cheese and baguette shops and eat their crepes and drink their tears. And we'll own the entire country in exactly six weeks. And we'll march back across Deutschland and make Russia beg for our mercy. Should take mo- no more than two or three days tops. If you think that sounded a lot more, uh, a lot more like Arnold Schwarzenegger than an old German, uh, you know, uh, war hero, yeah, you're fucking, you're right. I realize it's it's easier for me to do a shitty Arnold Schwarzenegger than it is for for me to do a more shitty German accent. So from now on, uh, uh, Schwarzenegger is the official accent of the Germans. And you know what? He is Austrian. Arnold's Austrian. Austria is to Germany what Scotland is to England. You know, same language, similar culture, just you know, different accent for the most part. Um, okay, France also had a pre-war battle plan known as Plan Seventeen. They developed that back in 1911. The French generals, uh, you know, had uh, had first developed that. It involved a major offensive by the French armies uh, across Alsace-Lorraine into the main German industrial areas. Uh, the French general staff calculated that uh, any German offensive would be launched in that area, and the best defense would be a strong offense. You know, hit them, hit them with their building their weapons. Another huge ingredient of World War One, uh, the one that would take it from a regional war like the like the Balkan Wars to a continental war was the formation of European alliances. This is what really dragged all of Europe into this war. Germany began to form alliances in the late 1800s. And this caused other European nations to form their own alliances, you know, lest they be overwhelmed if they're ever attacked by the Germans. And then these alliances, uh, which would perpetually shift, by the way, nice reflection of how politically unstable Europe was leading up to the war. Um, Yeah, countries were swapping back and forth. Even once the war started, like Italy was like, yeah, well, fucking, we'll help you out, Germany, you know, before the war. And then during the war, they're like, ah, just kidding. We we uh, we feel like the other side has a better chance of victory. We're going to go with them. Um, these alliances, yeah, would drag all these multiple nations, you know, quickly into this big fucking war. Uh, the BFW, maybe that's what it should have been called, you know. Did you fight in the BFW? What? The big fucking war. Uh, 1873, the first alliance created was the Three Emperors League, pledging mutual wartime support amongst Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Russia. Didn't last long. Russia withdrew five years later in 1878, and then Germany and Austria-Hungary formed the Dual Alliance in 1879. The Dual Alliance promised uh, that the parties would aid each other if Russia attacked them or if Russia assisted another power at war with either nation. In 1881, Germany and Austria-Hungary strengthened their bond by forming the Triple Alliance with Italy. All three nations pledged to support the, you know each other if they were attacked by France. Also, if any member found itself at war with two or more nations at once, the alliance would come to their aid. Italy, the weakest of the three, uh, insisted on a final clause voiding the deal if the, uh, the Triple Alliance members were the aggressor. Like, don't, don't start shit. We'll help if you get attacked, but don't start shit. And then shortly after, Italy signed a deal with France, uh, pledging support of Germany to attack them. Italy always going back and forth back then. Uh, after Chancellor Otto, Van, Otto Vaughn, or fucking Otto Van Bismarck, now I wrote it as Van, I think it's Otto Vaughn. Otto Von Bismarck was uh, voted out of power in 1890. Kaiser Wilhelm II pursued an aggressive policy of German militarization. Alarmed by Germany's naval buildup, the United Kingdom, Russia, and France began to strengthen their ties. Russia entered into an agreement with France in 1892, spelled out in the Franco-Russian military convention. Terms were loose, but tied both nations to supporting each other if they should be involved in war, uh, designed to counter the Triple Alliance. Much of the diplomacy Bismarck had considered critical to Germany's survival had been outdone in a few years then, and the nation once again faced threats on two fronts. Uh, concerned about the threat of rival powers uh, posed to the colonies, Great Britain began searching for alliances of its own. Although the UK had not supported France in the Franco-Prussian War, the two nations did pledge military support for one another in the Entente uh, Cordial uh, of 1904. 
Three years later, 1907, Britain signed a similar agreement with Russia and the Triple Entente was formed. So now as we prepare to enter World War I, you have the major powers of, of Britain, actually the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland at the time. Uh, so you have Britain, France, known as the French Third Republic at that time, and the Russian Empire on one side, known as the Triple Entente. And then on the other side, you have the Triple Alliance of the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Italy. Uh, outside of Scandinavia and the Iberian Peninsula, most of Europe is military aligned with one uh, of these two sides. So now let's talk about the final ingredients uh, of this first war, the instability of the Austro or Austro-Hungarian Empire and some battles in the Balkans. And I think it's clear at this point that while what happens next did lead directly to this war, if these events hadn't have happened, something else would have lit the fuse on the powder keg of Europe, as it became known, within the next few years. Uh, Europe by 1910 was just absolutely on a, on, a, on a course for war. They're destined for a major war. Fucking Balkans, man. What a mess. Uh, the Balkans, a mountainous region that includes present-day countries of Greece, Albania, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Romania, part of Yugoslavia, Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia, Herzegovina. That's a tricky one. Uh, geographically, European Turkey, small region around Istanbul, and uh, also located in the Balkans. And um, if you'll recall from way back in the Vlad the Impaler suck, the Balkans, a.k.a. Southeastern Europe, been a shit show for centuries. Uh, the, wor the word Balkan actually means shit show in English. Uh, that's not true. It means show, it means show of shit. Uh, no, it means uh, it means wooded mountain chain in Turkish, actually. Uh, and it was sandwiched between the various Christian empires of Europe and the Muslim Ottoman Empire for centuries. Uh, look at various maps of Europe in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. Uh, you'll see national boundaries continually being redrawn, country names changing, you know, continually being rewritten. Uh, there are the Serbian Slavic people with their Eastern Orthodox-based roots. There are the Croats of Croatia, another Slavic people, uh, largely identified as Roman Catholic, the Ottoman, Turkish, uh, Turkish Muslims, uh, Albanians who share a language not closely related to any of the other uh, European languages. Culture is fragmented over the years, some Albanians being Eastern Orthodox, some being Roman Catholic, some being Muslim. You have other ethnic groups like you know the Greeks, Romanians, Hungarians, Roma people, many more. And long, long, long story, very short – uh, a lot of wars have been fought in these mountains for centuries between more than a dozen different ethnic groups uh, who for various periods of the Middle Ages and in some cases even before that developed independent cultures due to the uh, geographic isolation these mountains provided. And then, you know, Europe would use those people as a buffer to prevent the Ottomans from coming in. The Ottomans would use them as a buffer to prevent the Crusaders from coming back. Very tumultuous area. And again, because of nationalistic attitudes like, you know, we like the way we do things. We do things better because our culture is the best and your culture is stupid. Many of these little various independent cultures grew to hate each other over centuries. Fucking meat sacks, man. Why do we keep doing this to each other? It's the same old story. You know, it, it reminds me of rabid sports fans who hate the fans of other teams. Hate people who behave exactly like they do because those people were born in Ann Arbor instead of Columbus or, or Boston instead of New York. Now, usually in sports, I know it's just play hate. You know, it's a game of pretending to hate, but not with nationalism. Nationalism is real hate. That's uh, people kill each other, you know, just because, you know, the, these other people were born in a different village, you know, dressed in a different way, worshiped a different God, ate different foods. It's asinine. Why can't we all just come together and just all look down on Polish people uh, like Nimrod intended? Hail Nimrod! Uh, where is Poland in this tale, by the way? Uh, no sovereign Polish state existed between 1795 and 1918. The Poles were subjugated, as God intended, by actual human beings, like the French under Napoleon, Russian czars, the Germans, a.k.a. the Prussians. Polish independence efforts would actually benefit greatly from World War I. 
uh, negotiations at the end of the war would lead to a new Polish independent state would last until World War II when Germany would take them over again. Uh, and then Russians would take them over after that. And then they've been independent again since 1989. And that's why currently, uh, because they've been independent for decades, Poland has, I don't know if you know this, no electricity, no running water. It's a network of caves, rundown buildings, uh, a lot of stuff burning, and just various clans of white furless monkey people living in ruins and throwing feces at one another. But, but enough about Poland. God, it makes me so irrationally happy just to slander my wife's homeland. I love you. I love you, Polish people. You know that. Uh, back to the Balkans. In, in early October 1908, the Austro-Hungarian Empire officially annexed the former Ottoman Empire territory of Bosnia, Herzegovina, which had occupied since 1878. And this angered the kingdom of Serbia and its patron. The also Slavic, also East Orthodox Russian Empire. Fucking alliances. Ah, and fucking monarchies. All the monarchies of Europe. Always complicating things back then. You know, as we talked about in previous sucks, this, this little kingdom is ruled by some dude who is first cousins with the head of this other little kingdom who just married into being first in line for the throne here and second in the line for the throne there and on and on and on. You know, it's this, uh, there's these, these various lines of royal succession and constant intermarriage between various royal families who, who rule, you know, various different European countries made things very Game of Thrones-ish. And the Russian political maneuvering in the region uh, destabilized existing peace accords that were already fracturing in the Balkans. Uh, And then in 1912 and 1913, the first Balkan War was fought between the Balkan League and the fracturing Ottoman Empire. The resulting Treaty of London further shrank the Ottoman uh, Empire, creating an independent Albanian state while enlarging the territorial holdings of Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, Greece. Then when Bulgaria attacked Serbia and Greece on June 16, 1913, it sparked a 33-day Second Balkan War, by the end of which it lost most of Macedonia to Serbia and Greece and southern uh, Dobruja uh, to Romania, further destabilizing this volatile region. Uh, the great powers of Europe were able to keep these Balkan conflicts contained at the time, but the next uh, little conflict would spread throughout Europe and beyond and become you know, World War I. So now let's talk about the exact incident that led to World War One, the, the fucking match that was thrown on all this gunpower, the, the assassination of Marmaduke, an extremely popular cartoon dog whose fake cartoon death led to the death of so many real people. Uh, that's not the right Duke. You know that. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, let's talk about the assassination of John Wayne, a.k.a. the Duke. Uh, that's what led Europe into war. Uh, John Wayne was an extremely popular fake cowboy who said things like, Life is tough, but it's tougher when you're stupid. And talk low, talk slow. Don't talk too much. That's not true. And that's a horrible John Wayne impression. John Wayne was only seven years old when World War I broke out. He didn't, he did say those things uh, years later, though. No, let's talk about the assassination of the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, I'm almost positive this one's right. Uh, Bo and Luke Duke, if I recall, were gunned down by Boss Hogg and some Bosnian Serbs. Daisy Duke started wearing mom jeans instead of those high and tight little Daisy Duke shorts we all love. And Eastern Europe lost its collective mind. Well, looks like those Duke boys found themselves stuck in a whole heap of trouble. And this time, they couldn't get unstuck. They got killed deader than a shot hog roasted on a spit and then used for target practice before getting thrown off a cliff. And Daisy, she didn't take it none too well. And that didn't sit well with the Germans, Russians, Serbs, Croats, or damn near no one. Uh, that Duke reference made even less sense than the previous ones. Uh, that show didn't even come out until 1979. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, like I said earlier, was assassinated on June 28th, 1914. For sure, that's the right Duke. And this is the event that will kick off. Today's giant World War One timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. So 
So who was Franz Ferdinand? Well, he was a 50-year-old nephew of Bo and Luke Duke. I'm done. No, uh, don't leave me. He was, a, he was a 50-year-old nephew of Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Joseph, a member of the Habsburg dynasty, one of the most uh, influential families of Europe, one of those one of those old money families that conspiracy theorists like David Icke and Alex Jones like to talk about. Uh, he was the presumptive heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne and inspector general uh, of the Austro-Hungarian army. And in the capacity of that last position, he agreed to attend some military exercises in June of 1914 in Bosnia, Herzegovina. Uh, remember, Austria-Hungary had just annexed these provinces a few years earlier uh, against the wishes of neighboring Serbia, which likewise co- coveted them, wanted them as well. And Ferdinand hated the Serbs. Ferdinand believed the Serbs to be, quote, pigs, thieves, murderers, and scoundrels. So not a fan, not a fan. He likes the Yankees. They're the Red Sox. Uh, yet he uh, he had opposed annexation of Serbia out of fear that it would make an already turbulent political situation even worse. And if his uncle had listened to him, he probably would have lived a lot longer. Uh, formerly controlled by the Ottoman Empire, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, its population was roughly 40% Serb, 30% Muslim, and 20% Croat, uh, with various other ethnicities making up the remainder. And upon learning of Ferdinand's upcoming visit, the young Bosnians, a secret revolutionary society of Serbian peasant students wanting to liberate, liberate Bosnia-Herzegovina from Austro-Hungarian control, began plotting to assassinate him. And how is there not a band called the Young Bosnians, by the way? That's a fucking dope name. They could open up for uh, Franz Ferdinand. Both solid band names. In May, uh, and I know that Franz Ferdinand is a band. That's why I said that. In, in May, uh, Gavrilo Princip, Princip and fellow revolutionaries traveled to Serbia, the Serbian capital of Belgrade, where they received six handheld bombs, four semi-automatic pistols, cyanide suicide capsules from members of the so-called Black Hand. It's a great name. That's a great band name, the Black Hand. Terrorist group with close ties to the Serbian army. After practicing with their pistols, the three men journeyed back to Bosnia-Herzegovina, receiving help from Black Hand associates to smuggle their weapons across the border. To this day, it remains unclear uh, whether or not the Serbian government uh, actually participated in this scheme. In late June, Ferdinand attended two days of military exercises outside Sarajevo. The morning of June 28, 1914, Franz and his wife Sophie boarded the train for the ride into Sarajevo. Uh, the couple got into an open-top car for a motorcade, a little ride to City Hall. The car in front of them was supposed to carry six specially trained officers, but instead only had one plus uh, three local policemen. Meanwhile, seven young Bosnians fanned out along the Apple Quay, uh, Main Avenue in Sarajevo, uh, running parallel to uh, Miyatska River. When the motorcade passed by, its route having been published in advance, an associate of Princip, uh, Nidelko Chabri Onovic, curled his bomb, or hurl, curled, he curled his bomb, hurled his bomb at the car carrying the Archduke, only to watch it bounce off the folded up roof, rolling underneath the wrong vehicle. Whoops! Still exploded. Subsequent explosion wounded two army officers, several bystanders, but left Ferdinand and Sophie essentially unharmed. And then instead of uh, maybe calling off then, uh, Ferdinand's like, no, we're going to continue. Continue to do a planned event at, at City Hall. Just a bomb. No, no, big, no big deal. Just some dude throwing a bomb at me. And in order to dissuade any other bomb throwers, the motorcade zipped down the Apple Quay at high speeds. Uh, but then they made a mistake. They, uh, the first three cars turned onto a side street right where Princip happened to be standing. It's bad luck. As the cars attempted to reverse back onto the Apple Quay, Princip uh, whipped out his pistol, fired two shots. He was apparently a good shot at the Archduke from point-blank range. Piercing him in the neck and also striking uh, Sophie in the abdomen. Sophie, Sophie, don't die. Stay alive for our children. Ferdinand murmured. And then within minutes, both had passed away. Uh, Princip later admitted to killing Ferdinand, but said he had not uh, meant to ever hit Sophie. Three weeks too young for the death penalty. At only 19 years old, Princip was given a 20-year sentence. 
but contracted tuberculosis and died in jail in April 1918 at the age of 23. Uh, Austria-Hungary assumes now that the Serbian government is behind this assassination and quickly gets allied Germany to support them to punish Serbia. On July 23rd, 1914, Austria-Hungary sends Serbia an ultimatum worded in a way that made acceptance very unlikely. You know, they, they gave them a list of demands they knew they weren't going to make. Uh, make. Here, here are some of those demands. Uh, one was the banning of Serbian publications, which had been responsible for anti-Austrian propaganda. There's that propaganda I was talking about. Uh, the removal of anti-Austrian individuals from the Serbian military, government, and civil service. The removal of Serbian teachers and curriculum that had promoted or incited anti-Austrian sentiments. The outline and disbanding of the Serbian nationalist group known as the People's Defense. A crackdown on cross-border arms trading and the removal of corrupt border, border officials. A joint Serbian-Austrian investigation into the assassination plot conducted within Serbia by Austrian officials and involving the investigation and interrogation of Serbian civilians and military personnel. Serbia immediately seeks counsel of their ally, the Russians. Tsar Nicholas II, uh, remember him from the Rasputin sect? Uh, he and his ministers offer to he and his ministers offer to publicly condemn the ultimatum, but also they're aware that Russia's military readiness lags behind Germany's, so they refuse to give any military guarantees. Uh, the British foreign minister tries to avert war by organizing a mediation conference between all nations with a stake in the crisis. This is rejected by both Berlin and Vienna. The British are the most reluctant to engage in war at this time because uh, less than 20 years prior, they uh, they made it through the Second Boer War in South Africa that lasted from 1899 to 1902, and they were not as eager to fight. The costs of war. Still fresh in their minds. Uh, they'd lost over 20,000 soldiers, roughly another 25,000 wounded, and millions and millions of pounds that it cost to engage a prolonged conflict. Serbia, infuriated but hesitant to engage the much larger Austro-Hungarian Empire in battle, responds to the Austrian ultimatum just before the expiration of the deadline. Serbia submits to most of the demands but, re but rejects that Austrian-led inquiry. They're not going to have just some Austrians come in their country and, you know, and just ask a bunch of questions without the Serbians being there right there with them. The Serbs proclaimed that their government gave no moral or material support to Princip and the other assassins. Uh, Serbia proposes uh, arbitration, neutral arbitration to resolve the dispute. Austria not interested. Uh, uh, Austro-Hungarian Emperor uh, Franz Joseph, pressured by his military advisors, then declares war on Serbia on July 28, 1914, exactly a month after Ferdinand's death. And shit is on! Uh, this declaration of war triggers a chain reaction that drags virtually all of Europe into war, all those fucking alliances. Uh, Russia, longtime protector of Serbia, responds first by mobilizing its forces against Austria-Hungary, basically immediately after Austria's war declaration. Three days later, on August 1st, Germany responds to Russia's mobilization against Austria-Hungary by declaring war on Russia. Germany launches their much-anticipated uh, Schlieffen plan, that scheme to invade France and then Russia the following day on August 2nd. They are ready to go. Uh, August 3rd, Germany officially declares war on France, ally of Russia. Germany also invades Belgium, which had remained uh, neutral. Uh, you know, Britain, allied with Belgium, immediately sends an ultimatum to Germany to withdraw or else— and on August 4th, 2014, Germany tells Britain to suck its dick. It says, and I quote, uh, take your bangles and mash, bang them right up your queen mom's ass. Uh, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger again. If I can pop in. Uh, that's, that's not an exact quote, but they did toss aside the uh, ultimatum and refuse to withdraw. Britain then declares war on Germany, uh, starting to feel like a game of risk, isn't it? The United States officially declares to remain neutral at this time. Also, on August 4th, the Siege of Liege begins as Germans attack the Belgian fortress city, but meet resistance from Belgian troops inside the Liege forts. 
They're neutral, but they're not just laying down, right? They do have an army. Over the next week and a half, the 12 forts surrounding the city are bombarded into submission by German and Austrian howitzers using high-explosive shells. Remaining Belgian troops retreat northward towards Antwerp as the German westward advance continues. On August 6th, the Austro-Hungarian Empire officially declares war on Russia in accordance with their alliance with Germany. Also on the 6th, French and British troops invade the German colony of Togo in West Africa, spread to another continent now. 20 days later, the German governor there surrenders. On August 7th, 1916, the first British troops land in France. The 120,000 highly trained members of the regular British Army from the British Expeditionary Force, BEF, commanded by Field Marshal John French. And before we go any further in this timeline, if you're thinking, holy shit, that's a lot of dudes, 120,000. Yeah, me too. Uh, so let me, let me take a second to toss some more numbers your way to give you a, an idea of the true size of the militaries uh, of each of the major players here at the start of the war. Here are the total numbers of the combined standing and reserve soldiers for each of World War I's major European combatants as of August 1914, uh, in order of most to least. So Russia has almost 6 million soldiers, 5,971,000 to start the war. My God. Although, to be fair, the overwhelming majority of these soldiers not highly trained. Uh, by the war's end, roughly 12 million soldiers will have fought for Russia. Germany starts with 4.5 million soldiers. By the end, uh, it'll have mobilized 11 million. France opens up with a little over 4 million. Uh, it'll suit up uh, 8.5 by 1918. Austro-Hungarian Empire, 4.5 million troops to start. Finish the war with almost 8 million young men sent into battle. Italy has just uh, over one and a quarter million to begin the war. It'll end with five and a half million fighting. Britain has just under a million troops in 1914. will have sent just under nine million to either fight or defend by 1918. Uh, various other nations, Romania, Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria, Montenegro, uh, Turkey, etc. will start with anywhere from around 50,000 to 300,000 troops and with anywhere from 50,000 to nearly three million. Poland, uh, zero troops. Yeah. Ah, fuck it. This is awkward. Poland had zero troops uh, at the beginning and end of the war because uh, this time, uh, not trying to be a dick, but not a, not a real country. Not a real country at that time. Uh, the war would produce somewhere around 65 million total veterans, including those who were wounded or would give their life for their country. And, uh, and as the war gets going, it's important to note that alliances would continue to shift. You know, directly before the war, the two major signs are the Triple Entente, you know, France, Britain, and Russia, and the Triple Alliance of Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Italy. Uh, once the war begins, the two sides will become known as the Allied and Central Powers. Italy will uh, uh, actually end up bailing on Germany and Austria-Hungary and join the Allies. Uh, there's more shifting. And now back to August 7th, though. So, okay, so August 7th, 1914, the French desire to score a quick victory ignites the first major French-German action of the war. The French army invades Alsace and Lorraine, uh, according to their master strategy known as Plan 17. However, the French offensive is met by effective German counterattacks using heavy artillery, uh, machine guns, um, and French suffer heavy casualties, including 27,000 soldiers killed in a single day. The worst one-day death toll in the history of the French army. The French then fall back towards Paris amid 300,000 total casualties. Man, 25,000 in a single day. And this is before tanks entered the war. This is before planes entered the war. Uh, this is uh, artillery fire, rifle fire, hand-to-hand -hand combat, trench warfare, not even begun, not quite yet. Uh, Great Britain and France declare war on Austria-Hungary on August 12th. Serbia is invaded by Austria-Hungary. Russia invades Germany on August 17th, attacking into East Prussia, forcing the outnumbered Germans there to fall back. This marks the advent of the Eastern Front in Europe in which Russia will oppose Germany and Austria-Hungary. Man, location, location, location. So important in both real estate and in war. Uh, being sandwiched in between Russia and the major powers of Western Europe would bite Germany in the ass in both world wars 
Uh, Russia, for example, you know, it can fight a war uh, in Europe on only one front. Uh, Germany, obviously, due to Central European location, uh, could not do that. But uh, they didn't care. You know, just uh, bring it Russia. Bring it rest of Europe. I can take you all. I can deadlift all of Western Europe. And then I, I can grab Mother Russia by her saggy babushka breast rip out the earth from beneath his feet with my powerful biceps. I will the military press all of you weaklings into Scandinavia. That was just blatantly Arnold Schwarzenegger at that point. That had nothing to do with anything. Uh, August 20th. Germany, Germany, uh, German troops occupy undefended Brussels, capital of Belgium. Following this, the, the main German armies continue westward, invade France according to their master strategy, that whole sh- uh, Schlieffen plan, which called for a giant counterclockwise movement of German armies wheeling into France, swallowing up Paris, then attacking the rear of the French armies concentrated in the Alsace-Lorraine uh, area under the overall command of Helmuth von Moltke, chief of the German general staff. The Germans seek to achieve victory over France within six weeks. Right, that whole 42 days, then focus on defeating Russia in the east before Russia's six million man army, the world's largest, can fully mobilize. Uh, Japan declares war on Germany, August 23rd, 1914. The Japanese then prepare to assist the British in expelling the Germans from the Far East. German possessions in the South Pacific include a naval base on the coast of China, part of New Guinea, Samoa, uh, the Caroline, Marshall, and Mariana Islands. Japan would start the war with a standing army of roughly 800,000 soldiers and mobilize all of them by 1918. On the Eastern Front, German troops in East Prussia under the command of Paul von Hindenburg and Erich uh, Ludendorff opposed the Russian Second Army. This is in August, uh, August 26, 1914. Aided by aerial reconnaissance and the interception of uncoded Russian radio messages, the Germans effectively repositioned their troops to counter the initial Russian advance in what becomes known as the Battle of Tannenberg. Five days later, after surrounding the Russians, the battle ends with German victory and the capture of 125,000 Russians. Following this success, the Germans drive the Russians out of East Prussia with heavy casualties. Uh, German possessions in the Far East are attacked as New Zealand troops occupy German Samoa. Three days later, Japanese forces land on the coast of China, preparing to attack the German naval base base at uh, Tao. A a month later, the Japanese begin their occupation of the Caroline Marshall and Mariana Islands. September 5th, 1914, the Treaty of London, signed by Great Britain, France, and the Russian Empire, officially now linking them as the major European Allied powers. On the Western Front, Paris is saved as French and British troops disrupt the Schlieffen Plan by launching a major counteroffensive against the invading German armies to the, to the east of Paris. 600 taxicabs from the city helped to move French troops to the front lines, aided by French aerial reconnaissance, which reveals a gap that is developed in the center of the whole German advance. The French and British exploit this weakness and press their advantage. Uh, the Germans then begin a strategic withdrawal toward the, the Allies, uh, toward northward as the Allies pursue. Each aide repeatedly tries to outmaneuver the other, gain a tactical advantage as they move northward in what becomes known as the race to the sea. Uh, pretty cool, man, that they're using uh, you know, modern, modern cars now and, and planes. And before we go further with dates and battles, let's, take, let's, let's talk a bit about how World War I was fought. You know, like what kind of weapons, uh, what kind of warfare, right after uh, a quick word from, from a sponsor— Time Suck is brought to you today by Hims. Do you know about Hims? Guys fighting back in World War I, they didn't get uh, sweet man lotions. They didn't get boner boosters and, some, and some, uh, some hair products, some hair hope. But dudes do now. 66% of men lose their hair by age 35. I'm 41. I still have it. So suck it. Wait, no, nah, nah, wait, nah, stay with me. That's not where I'm supposed to go with that. Uh, no, thankfully, baldness can be optional thanks to 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men, I've used finasteride uh, the past couple of years, and while it doesn't work for everyone, it sure as hell has worked for me. More, more hair, 
than my dad or grandpa had at my age uh, for sure, way more. And I haven't noticed any side effects. And I have a bigger wean. My dad, my grandpa, and I, uh, we measure our weans side by side every Thanksgiving. It's a, it's a tradition in the family. Uh, I'm getting way off track. Now, that was crazy talk. That doesn't happen. I don't, I don't know anything about my dad or grandpa's weans. But I do know stuff about hymns. Hymns connects you with uh, real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. These are well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. No snake oil pills. No, no gas station counter supplements. Uh, just go to 4 answer a few quick questions, and a doctor will review and can prescribe you what you need. Then products ship directly to your door. No more waiting rooms. No more awkward doctor visits. Order now. Time suckers get a free trial of hymns for just 5 bucks a day. Uh, 5 bucks today. Not a day. 5 bucks today. Right now, while supplies last, see website for full details. This would cost you hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. So go to 4hims.com slash timesuck. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash timesuck. 4hims.com slash timesuck. Link in the old episode of description. Now let's talk about those World War I weapons. The first world war when it came to weaponry was a reflection of the industrial revolution that the world was going through at this time. Key to winning the war was your side's ability to modernize more quickly, more effectively than your enemy. The British Army, for example, was the first enemy, uh, first army uh, to introduce tanks. Planes were used in war for the first time, flamethrowers, poison gas, tracer bullets for night battles, death charges, aircraft carriers, submarines, trench warfare, and more introduced in World War I. Uh, let's first talk about trench warfare, some nasty shit, kind of the defining type of combat for World War I. Um, trench warfare born during the first Battle of Marne in early September 1914. This battle also introduced the concept of automotive transport into war. We just talked about that. Uh, when roughly 3,000 inf- infantrymen were transported, uh, i.e. driven into battle from Paris via those 600 taxis, just Ubering, just Ubering right on, right on into war. Uh, the Marne is less than 160 kilometers, less than 100 miles northeast of Paris. The Germans had just made it within 30 miles or 48 kilometers from Paris just prior to this battle when French army, uh, the French army, joined by the British Expeditionary Force, began to push them back. However, French leaders soon realized that if they pushed back too hard towards Germany, following their strategy of Plan 17, the Germans could mobilize around them. They could push right on through the German army, and then and Germany could you know sneak back towards Paris and then surround them, cut them off from behind. Also, German leaders realized that if they pushed too quickly into France— Following their Schlieffen plan, they risked the possibility of, of French and British forces kind of doing the same thing to them, cutting through the middle of the ranks, you know, uh, separating advancing armies from, uh, you know, from supply trains, uh, you know, cutting them off. So, so both sides decided to kind of change up their strategies. As the Germans retreated, the French and British uh, did nearly encircle them, but the Germans were able to make it uh, north of the uh, Seine River. They dug defensive trenches uh, to prevent the British and French from pushing them uh, back into Belgium, and it worked. And I'm not sure about the pronunciation of that river. I, I looked up most of these words, but there was a fucking million words this week. <laughs> Too many fucking countries. But it's uh, A-S-A-S-N-E river, A-S-N-E, uh, for you pronunciation sticklers. However, the British and, and, then, the, and then the French, okay, so the, yeah, they push them, sorry. So they, they, they get north of this river, they, and they start digging defensive trenches to prevent the British and France you know, from pushing them back into Belgium, and it works. It saves their armies. However, then the British and then the French, they dig trenches to prevent the Germans from pushing further back towards Paris at a later date. And now they have this fucked-up stalemate that would just last for years. Uh, forward-moving strategies such as head-on infantry attacks were no longer effective or feasible against modern weaponry, weaponry uh, like these machine gun nests and these trenches and heavy artillery. And, and before the trenches, uh, over 250,000 soldiers on each side would die in less than a week of fighting. 
uh, in this little conflict here, this battle. Holy shit, man. Half a million men uh, dead in less than a week, mostly from artillery fire. Uh, early trenches were, were little more than foxholes or ditches intended to provide a measure of protection during short battles. But then as the stalemate continued, you know, it became obvious that a more elaborate system was needed. And then the first major trench lines were completed in November 1914. By the end of the year, of that year, they stretched 475 miles, almost 500 miles worth of gigantic war ditches. Uh, starting at the North Sea, running through Belgium and northern France, ending in the Swiss frontier. Although the specific construction of a trench was determined by local terrain, most were built according to the same basic design. The front wall of the trench, known as the uh, parapet, averaged 10 feet high. Lying with sandbags from top to bottom, the parapet also featured two or three uh, feet of sandbags stacked above ground level. These provided protection but also obscured a soldier's view. A ledge known as the fire step was built into the lower part of the ditch, allowed a soldier to step up and see over the top, usually through a peephole between sandbags, when he's ready to fire his weapon. Periscopes and mirrors were also used to see above the sandbags. The rear wall of the trench, known as the uh, parados, uh, excuse me, pardos, was lined with sandbags as well, protecting against a rear assault. Uh, because constant shelling and frequent rainfall could cause the, the trench walls to collapse, they were reinforced with sandbags, uh, logs, branches, whatever they could find. Think of all the work that went into that, just digging and cutting and stacking and hauling while you're being attacked by the enemy. Uh, trenches were dug in a zigzag pattern so that if the enemy entered the trench, they couldn't just fire straight down the line. You know, just couldn't set up a machine gun and just fucking blast people for as far as the bullets could travel. Uh, a typical trench system included a line of three or four trenches. The front line, also called the outpost or the fire line, the support trench, the reserve trench, uh, all built parallel to one another and anywhere from 100 to 400 yards apart. And the main trench lines were connected by communicating trenches. Uh, man, just a maze, allowing for the movement of messages, supplies, soldiers, protected by fields of dense barbed wire. The fire line was located at varying distances from the Germans' front line, usually anywhere between 50 and 300 yards. Think about that, 50 yards from the enemy for years. 50 yards from thousands and thousands of men desperately wanting to kill you. Uh, the area between the two armies' front lines was known as no man's land. Some trenches contained dugouts below the level of the trench floor, often as deep as 20 or 30 feet. Most of these underground rooms were a little more than crude cellars, but some, especially those farther back from the front, offered more conveniences such as beds, furniture, <laughs> stoves. Because uh, these guys, you know, they're there for years. The German dugouts were considerably more sophisticated. One dugout captured in the uh, Somme Valley in 1916 was found to have toilets, electricity, ventilation, and even wallpaper. They were just like, yeah, we're going to be here a while. Just set up shop. Uh, can you imagine fighting in trenches like that? That close to so many members of the enemy? Oh, man, if, if you can't imagine, just listen to this following account from a dude who was there. A dude who fought in the trenches that did not have toilets, electricity, ventilation, or wallpaper. I'd like to introduce you to one Horace Pippin. Horace Pippin was an American artist classified in 1947 by art critic Elaine Locke as a real and rare genius, combining folk quality with artistic maturity so uniquely as almost to defy classification. His work has been featured in New York City's uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, so, so many more places. Uh, he would die of a stroke, um, a, a respected and successful artist in 1946 at the age of 58. Back in 1917, Horace was just a 19-year-old kid fighting in World War I's trenches who kept a diary of what he went through. Uh, on June 1st, 1917, not long after the U.S. would enter the war, Pippin volunteered for the 15th New York National Guard, later christened the, 30, the 369th Regiment, and nicknamed the Harlem Hellfighters. The Harlem Hellfighters were an African-American infantry unit in World War I who spent more time in combat than any other American unit. 
Uh, Pippin poured out his war memories into a few small kind of composition notebooks, filling page after page with his tidy handwriting, offering a, a rare first-person account of the harrowing combat experience of trench warfare. His unit landed on the Atlantic coast of France in July of 1917. They were assigned to the infantry under General John J. Blackjack Pershing, the man we talked about in the Pancho Villasuck. Uh, if you recall, General Pershing and 5,000 U.S. soldiers hunted Poncho near the Mexican border in 1960. Uh, with the French looking to the U.S. to help replenish their badly depleted armies, Pershing handed the 369th over to assist them. Seeing the shoddy equipment given to America's black troops, the French re-kitted the Hellfighters with French hel- uh, rifles, helmets, belts, gas masks, canteens with wine. Uh, they also beefed up the 369th military training and trench construction, machine gun operation, construction used to grenades. Preparations for a gas attack. Uh, what a badass unit name, by the way. The Hellfighters. That's that's a name you can be proud of, you know? Like, like how much would it suck if, you, if your buddies joined the war and wrote you, you know, told you about how they just joined the Hellfighters, and, and then you sign up, and <laughs> and you get stuck in, like, the Little Fellas. Like, what division are you in? I'm the Little Fellas. Or, like, the, or like the Dingleberries. Uh, maybe, like, the Squirrel Nipples. Hey, buddy, just deployed in the uh, Devil's Fist Brigade. Who'd you get assigned to? Uh-huh. I'm going to be fighting with the Squirrel Nipples. I got, I'm working with the Squirrel Nipples. Squirrel Nipples? That's a terrible name. Who came up with that? I don't, I don't know, Rocky. Not me. Can't they at least call you Satan, Squirrel Nipples? I know. I, know. I don't even think that's better, really. Uh, Pippin would write, We were all in the dugout when the shells were dropping all around our trench. As soon as we came out of our dugout, I could smell gas. I looked around me and I seen that they had all that they all had their gas masks on. Every step we took, a shell would land somewhere near the trench. He wanted to describe how mortar shells caved in parts of the trench, forcing them to quote fall on their bellies and crawl like worms through the muck. He wrote about poisonous gas clouds pushed on them by the Germans. They could be so thick, he wrote, that it all looked blue. The Germans put so much gas in one place, and it was so thick that it looked like fog. When the uh, artillery opened up, he wrote. You would have thought the world was coming to an end. To see those shells bursting in the night, the gas, dust, and smoke was terrible. Men laying all over wounded and dead. Uh, Some being carried. We wished we could help the wounded, but we couldn't. We had to leave them there and keep advancing, ducking from shell hole to shell hole all day. Oh, my God, man. Just hearing people and literally in their fucking death rattles. Agony. You're just marching past them, knowing that you might be next at any second and just doing that hour after hour. Poison gas all around you. The constant explosion of shells. It's fucking hell. It's fucking hell on earth. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, and, and so many men fought like Pippin, fought in those trenches for years, you know, that 475 uh, miles, 765 kilometers of trenches. Uh, that's just in the Western Front alone. Life in the trenches, you know, nightmarish, man. Heavy rainfall would flood the trenches, create impassable, muddy conditions. The mud not only made it difficult to get from one place to another, it also had more dire consequences. Many times, soldiers became trapped in thick, deep mud and unable to free themselves. They would just literally drown to death in the mud. Uh, The pervading precipitation created other difficulties. Trench walls would collapse, rifles jam. Soldiers would fall victim to the much-dreaded trench foot, a condition similar to frostbite. Trench foot develops as a result of men being forced to stand in water for several hours, even days, with no chance to remove wet boots and socks. In extreme cases, gangrene would develop in a soldier's toes, or even his entire foot would have to be amputated because it was just rotten, literally rotten. Huge bummer. Huge bummer if you get assigned to the squirrel nipples uh, and then lose both your feet to trench foot. Even worse if you don't actually see combat. You know, you get sent to a regiment with a fucking dumb name, stand in a cold ditch, for two or three months, and then get both your feet removed and then sent back home without even a cool story to tell. 
Uh, even worse, heavy rains were not sufficient to wash away the filth, the foul odor of human waste, all the shit, literal shit in the trenches, decaying corpses. Uh, not only did these unsanitary conditions continue to spread disease, they attracted an enemy despised by both sides, the rat, huge rat problem in the trenches, just fucking th- tens of thousands of rats sharing the trenches with soldiers. Even more horrifying, they would feed upon the remains of the dead. Soldiers would shoot them out of disgust and frustration only to watch the rats continue to multiply uh, for the duration of the war. Now I'm picturing that poor little fellow from the Squirrel Nipples Regiment watching a rat gnaw on his ganger's trench foot. Shit keeps getting worse for this imaginary dude. Uh, other vermin that plagued the troops included head and body lice, mites, scabies, massive swarms of flies. Uh, as terrible as the sights and smells were for the men to endure, the deafening noises that surrounded them during heavy shelling were probably even more terrifying. In, in the midst of heavy barrage, dozens of shells per minute could land in the trench, causing ear-splitting explosions. Few men could remain calm under the circumstances, and many, many, many soldiers suffered emotional nervous breakdowns. Additional diseases such as trench fever, an infection caused by lice feces, louse feces, trench uh, nephritis, an inflammation of the kidneys uh, also could occur because uh, there's another common medical problem, caused significant loss of manpower. So the trenches were the fucking worst. Uh, Now let's talk about tanks. The leading military mind that brought the tank to World War I was British Lieutenant Colonel Ernest Swinton. In uh, 1914, he proposed the development of a new type of armored fighting vehicle, because there actually were uh, armored vehicles previous to the tank. Uh, the Germans, British, Austrians, Russians, French all had armored vehicles that could fight on normal terrain uh, at the outset of the Great War, but then if things get muddy, got all these trenches to worry about, you know, you need a tank. Uh, Swinton would oversee development of the first true tank that would have a top speed of four miles per hour on flat land. Man, that's a... Uh, and move quick. The ability to turn sharply at top speed. I love it. Top speed. They included that. Uh, it's going to go four miles an hour, but we have to be sure that when it's hauling ass, when it's, you know, all the way, when the pedal's down to the floor and it's going at four miles an hour, it still has to be able to turn kind of quick. Uh, had the ability to climb a five-foot uh, parapet, the ability to cross an eight-foot gap so it could just roll on over uh, most trenches. Uh, working radius of 20 miles. A crew of 10 men with two machine guns on board, one light artillery gun. By 1918, Britain and France had produced 6,500 tanks, 6,506 actually, between them. Germany had produced just 20. However, Germany would le- learn to deal with World War I tanks very effectively. During the Battle of uh, Amiens in 1918, 72% of Allied tanks were destroyed in just four days. Six days before the end of World War I, the British tank corps only had eight tanks left total. Uh, one of the enduring hallmarks of World War I was the large-scale use of chemical weapons, commonly called gas. Just, you know, just uh, simply gas. Chemical warfare, man, terrifying. An enemy coming for you that you cannot stab, you cannot shoot, you cannot bomb. One that sneaks into your lungs, one that you can't even always smell or see before it gets in there. It's like getting attacked by a ghost. Although chemical warfare caused less than 1% of the total deaths in the war, the fear factor was uh, formidable. Several chemical weapons were modernized in World War I, and France actually was the first to use gas. They deployed tear gas in August 1914. It would just irritate the eyes, cause uncontrolled tearing, uh, large doses could even cause temporary blindness, make breathing difficult, but but most symptoms go away in like 30 minutes or less. So not very effective as a weapon against large groups of enemy soldiers. Uh, the Germans debuted chlorine gas in Belgium in, in April 1915. Chlorine is a uh, diatomic gas, about two and a half times denser than air, uh, pale green in color uh, with an odor which was described as a mix of pineapple and pepper. It can react with water in the lungs to form hydrochloric acid, which destroys tissue and can quickly lead to death or at least permanent lung tissue damage and disability. At lower concentrations, it can cause coughing, vomiting, eye irritation. Uh, Chlorine was deadly against unprotected soldiers. Estimated over 1,100 were killed in its first use in Belgium. 
Uh, but chlorine's usefulness is short-lived. Its color and odor made it easy to spot. Uh, since chlorine is water-soluble, even soldiers without gas masks could minimize its effect by placing water-soaked, even urine-soaked rags over their mouths and noses. Ah, that's when you know you're not having fun fighting when you got, you got pee rag covering your mouth to keep you alive. Uh, additionally, releasing the gas in a cloud posed problems, as the British learned to their detriment when they attempted to use chlorine at loose, and the wind shifted, uh, carried the gas back onto their own men. That's fucking, that sucks. Launch a big gas attack on the enemy, and then you have the wind change. You know, Take that, you German scoundrels. Tell the Kaiser that we're... <coughs> Tell them that we're... <coughs> oh, bloody hell. This is most unpleasant. <coughs> tell, tell the Kaiser to, to please send help. We've just gassed ourselves. Uh, the wind being able to change is, the, is the, uh, also the reason that the British stopped using kites in battle. Uh, the little fellow's kite regiment suffered a horrible defeat when they tried sending bomb-carrying kites. Uh, over, I'm going to stop. That was dumb. <laughs> Uh, anyways, the Germans uh, tested uh, phosgene, carbonyl dichloride. Next, in December 1915, phosgene is a colorless gas with an odor likened to that of musty hay. But for the odor to be detectable, the concentration had to be 0.4 parts per million, several times higher than the lethal level. Uh, phosgene is highly toxic due to its ability to react with proteins in the uh, alveoli of the lungs, disrupting the blood-air barrier, leading to suffocation. So that's not fun. Man, you just can't breathe all of a sudden. Phosgene, much more effective and deadly than chlorine. One drawback, though, is the symptoms could sometimes take up to 48 hours to manifest. So estimated that as many as 85% of the 91,000 gas deaths in World War I result of phosgene or related agent uh, diphosgene. Most commonly used gas in World War I was mustard gas. In pure liquid form, it's colorist, but in World War I, impure forms were used, which had a mustard color, so it gave it its name, uh, an irritant, Strong vesicant, a blister-forming agent. It causes chemical burns on contact. Ugh. Blisters oozing yellow fluid. That's f- fun. Uh, initial exposure is symptomless, and by the time skin irritation begins, it's too late to take preventative measures. Now, the mortality rate for mustard gas, only 2 to 3%. But those who suffered chemical burns and respiratory problems were immobilized. You know, they were taken out of the war. It led to long hospitalizations, you know, and if they recovered, um, they were also thought to be at, at risk uh, for developing, you know, higher risk for developing cancer later in their lifetime. Uh, in the First World War, military submarines made a significant impact for the first time. The German U-boats enjoyed a great deal of success, responsible for destroying around half of all the food uh, and supplies transported by the British Merchant Navy during the war. Uh, U-boat is an abbreviation for uh, Unterseeboot, Unterseeboot, Unterseeboot. Uh, which when translated into English means undersea boat. So you're welcome. When that comes up on Jeopardy or some bar trivia night, what is the abbreviation for undersea boat, Alex? Uh, when the First World War began, the, the German armed forces had 29 uh, undersea boats, 29 U-boats at their disposal. In the first 10 weeks of the conflict, they sank five British cruisers. Between October 1916 and January 1917, a grand total of 1.4 million tons of Allied shipping was lost to U-boats. U-boat attacks. These, uh, these losses were eventually curtailed when the Allies introduced escorted convoys with merchant ships surrounded by military vessels. Uh, during World War I, Germany built 360 U-boat submarines, 178 of which were lost. In total, they were responsible for the loss of more than 11 million tons of Allied shipping. And let's talk about planes. Newly invented airplane entered World War I as well. The age of the fighter jet. Right, the beginning of it, uh, uh, you know, dogfights. Initially, uh, an, an observer though of enemy activity in 1914, the importance of the information gathered by this new technological innovation was made evident to all the belligerents in the opening days of the conflict. The equal importance of preventing the enemy from accomplishing this mission was also apparent. Right, so it's like, oh, cool, we can go spy on these guys, find out where to put our troops. But then you're like, ah, fuck shit, I just got passed by some other plane doing the same thing for the enemy. How can we get rid of that guy? 
Well, the French were the first to develop an effective solution to uh, spy planes. On April 1st, 1915, French pilot, pilot, why did I say pilot? French pilot, Roland Garros, the dude the the, uh, tennis tournament is named after. The first person to cross the Mediterranean via the sky took to the air in an airplane armed with a machine gun that would fire through its propeller. This feat was accomplished by protecting the lower section of the propeller blades with steel armor plates that deflected any bullets that might strike the blades. Crude solution, but it worked. On his first flight, Garros downed a German observation plane. Yeah, fucking take that spy plane. He became a national hero in his total of five enemy kills. Some historians do think it was four, but whatever. Uh, that became the benchmark for an air ace. You gotta, if you shoot down five, you're an ace. However, on April 19th, Garros was forced down behind enemy lines in a secret revealed to the Germans. And then Dutch aircraft manufacturer Anthony Fokker, whose factory was nearby, was immediately summoned to inspect the plane. The Germans ordered Fokker to return. Uh, my, I think I'll meet the parents now. Come on, Fokker. Uh, the Germans ordered Fokker to return to his factory, duplicate the French machine gun, and demonstrate it to them within 48 hours. Uh, that was a stressful 48 hours for that son of a bitch. Uh, he did what he was told and then some, aware that the French device was crude and would ultimately result in damaging the propeller. Fokker and his engineers looked for a better solution, and the result was a machine gun whose rate of fire was controlled by the turning of the propeller. The synchronization assured that the bows would pass harmlessly just through the space in between the propeller blades, which is amazing to me that they had that level of technological innovation back in 1915. Uh, the airplane, no longer just an observer of the war. Now, now it's a full-fledged participant in the carnage of conflict. By the end of the war, crude bombers also began to be used. Actually, uh, blimps were used throughout the war as bombers. And then anti-aircraft guns were created to counteract flight warfare. Each innovation of war would create another. Uh, let's talk about machine guns. Machine gun, an important weapon in World War I. Uh, when General War began in August 1941, uh, 1914, excuse me, uh, machine guns of all armies, largely of the very heavy variety, decidedly ill-suited for portability uh, by rapidly advancing infantry troops. Each weighed somewhere in the 30 to 60 kilogram range, you know, 66 to 132 pounds. Uh, and that's without their mountings, carriages, and supplies. The 1914 machine gun, usually positioned on a flat tripod, would require a gun crew of four to six operators. In theory, they could fire 400 to 600 small caliber rounds per minute, a figure that was to uh, more than double by the war's end with rounds fed via a fabric belt or a metal strip. However, machine guns still jam frequently, especially in hot conditions or when used by inexperienced operators. Consequently, machine guns would often be grouped together to maintain a constant defensive position, especially in those trenches. Uh, Excuse me, estimates of their equivalent accurate rifle firepower would vary with some estimates, uh, estimating a single machine gun was basically worth as many as six, 60 to 100 rifles. Uh, 80 is usually the most consent, uh, consensual figure there. Uh, very, very impressive. When the war broke out in August 1914, the Germans had 12,000 machine guns at their disposal, a number which would eventually balloon to 100,000. In contrast, the British and French had access to a mere few hundred uh, machine guns when the war began. And then as the war went on, they would get a little bit lighter and, and the rate of firepower a little bit greater. And then the flamethrower might be the scariest weapon uh, that debuted in World War I. Brought terror to French and British soldiers when used by the German army in the early phases of the First World War. The basic idea of a flamethrower, just to spread, you know, fire by launching burning fuel. Pretty, pretty simple, pretty horrific. Uh, I think I would rather be shot or drowned than burned to death. The earliest flamethrowers date as far back as the 5th century BC. These took the form of lengthy tubes uh, filled with burning solids like uh, coal, sulfur, and, uh, and were used the same way that blowguns were used. You have to blow into one end of the tube, and then the solid material inside would be propelled towards the, you know, the enemy. Uh, the flamethrower was inevitably refined over the intervening centuries. The German army tested two models of flamethrower in the early 1900s, one large, one small, uh, both developed by this man, Richard, Richard Firestarter Fiedler. 
Now, that was his nickname, but it probably should have been. The, the smaller, lighter flamethrower was designed for portable use, carried by a single man. Under pressurized air and carbon dioxide or nitrogen, it belched forth a stream of burning oil for as much as 18 meters or 60 feet. Shooting 60 feet of flame. Fielder's second larger model worked along the same lines, but was not suitable for transport by a single person. But the maximum range was twice that of the smaller model. It could sustain flames for an impressive 40 seconds, shoot them over 100 feet for over 30 seconds. What a terrible thing to see coming towards you, man. Just watching men burning alive, screaming bloody murder. Uh, the first notable use of the flamethrower came in a surprise attack launched by the Germans upon the British at Hooge and Flanders. Springing forth to July uh, 30th, 1915, the Germans made effective use of the portable flamethrower with gas cylinders strapped to the back of men responsible for the use of the instrument, light nozzle attached to each cylinder. The, effective, uh, or the effect of the dangerous nature of the surprise attack proved terrifying to the British opposition, although their line initially pushed back uh, was stabilized later the same night in that first flamethrower battle. In two days, though, of severe uh, of severe fighting, the British lost 31 officers and 751 other soldiers to flames. Ah! And the Germans would use these weapons for the remainder of the war. The British, intrigued by the possibilities offered by flamethrowers, also experimented with them. In readiness for one particular offensive, they constructed four sizable models weighing two tons each. They went big. And they just built them directly into a trench constructed in no man's land, a mere 60 yards from the German line. They were just going to burn them out of their... A trench, uh, but it took, you know, it took forever to construct these things. And then, uh, you know, uh, then sometimes they were destroyed by shell fire when they're trying to build them. Uh, highly effective at clearing that first level of trenches, but then, you know, then they're fucking stuck there. They weigh a couple tons. You can't move. So, the, so they didn't really use them after that. Uh, similarly, the French developed their own portable one-man flamethrower using trench attacks in 1917, 1918, getting, getting burned alive in a trench. Sounds like hell. Tr- true hell, man. Uh, during the war, the Germans launched an, an, ex- an excess of 650 flamethrower attacks. And then no numbers exist for, for British and French attacks, but thought to be quite a bit lower. So all these weapons, so many others uh, new, man. Compare these, these weapons to the last major European war, the, the Franco-Prussian War. Dude's still fighting, uh, a lot of them with bolt-action rifles, which I know some guys still use in you know, World War I as well, or a lot of guys. But, uh, but that was like more primary earlier. Uh, bayonets, old-school cannons, uh, cavalry. You know, still, a, you know, an, an important piece of one's army. There were machine guns, but really effective ones or ineffective ones, you know, prior to World War I. There were giant machine guns that broke down so frequently or were so hard to load or so misunderstood as how to use them that they were just really kind of worked theoretically. And now it's war on steroids, gas, flames, tanks, planes fighting in the sky for the first time, submarines, you know, uh, elaborate trenches, millions and millions of men involved in the fight. Odds are, thanks to modern tech, smart, smart bombs, nuclear weapons, all that stuff, we'll never see a war like this again. Thank God. Not, not guys battling out in uh, giant, sprawling battlefields like, like this one. Okay. So now, so now let's get back to Now that you know about the weaponry of World War I, let's get back to the progression of the battles right after a word from our last sponsor of the day. Uh, today's Time Suck is brought to you by Away Travel. Uh, I get so many compliments on my away uh, carry-on suitcase or for my away carry-on. No shit. Even flight attendants ask me about it uh, multiple times. That's when you know your luggage is good. Uh, it's legit. When people who fly for a living are like, hey, well, where'd you get that? Uh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, away offers high-quality luggage that is designed to be resilient, resourceful, essential to the way you travel. It's available in a variety of colors and four sizes. I got the dark blue carry-on, including carry-on sizes that are compliant with all major U.S. airlines. The away suitcase, lightweight, made with premium German polycarbonate. It's unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. Germans, greatest starting world wars, even better at building kick-ass suitcases. Suitcases, suitcases that, that could survive a trench. Uh, they feature TSA-approved combination locks, four 360-degree spinner wheels, patent-pending compression system to help overpackers. That's what I like best in mind, the compression system. Seriously, uh, I, put all my, I put all my foldable clothes 
in one side. And I just stack it up about, you know, twice as high as the little thing should allow. And then I just put this strap system over it and then just cinch it down, squeeze it all in there with those powerful straps. Uh, better yet, both sizes of the carry-on are able to change uh, or charge anything powered by USB cord. Single charge will power your iPhone five times. Yep. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm doing uh, layovers, I like to tuck my iPhone underneath the little handle strap at the top of my waist suitcase while I have it plugged into that USB port. And I'm just charging as I'm moving. Multitasking. Hell Nimrod. So try it away for 100 days. Vibe with it. Travel with it. Instagram it. And if at any point you decide it's not for you, uh, return it for a full refund. Shipping is free within the lower 48 states. And thanks to Away's lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they will fix it. So you've got nothing to lose. And not to talk shit on competitors. They don't want me to do that. But I have two other suitcases uh, that have broken this year. Not a scratch in my way. So there's that. Uh, they're very, very uh, hard, hard to beat up. Uh, for 20 bucks off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash timesuck. Use promo code timesuck during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash timesuck. Promo code timesuck. 20 bucks off your away suitcase. Link in the episode description. Love having these awesome sponsors, man. When you when you purchase uh, use these purchase codes, these timesuck purchase codes, you, you not only treat yourself to something nice, you show uh, support to timesuck while you support yourself. We, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now back to our battle timeline. Now that we know a little bit uh, more about weaponry. September of 1914, the British, French, and Germans had begun digging tunnels into northeastern France. Uh, in the Far East, a German naval squadron commanded by Graf von Spree severs the British Pacific communications cable. Uh, on the eastern fr uh, front, September 17th, Austrian forces steadily retreat from the advancing Russian 3rd and 8th armies. Fighting in southern uh, Polish territory along the Russian-Austrian border, the Germans then send the newly formed 9th Army to halt the Russians. This marks the beginning of a pattern in which the Germans will aid the weaker Austro-Hungarian Austro Army. Uh, September 22nd, the first ever British air raid against Germany occurs as Zeppelin bases at uh, Cologne and Dusseldorf are bombed. October 19th, still hoping to score a quick victory in the West, the Germans launch a major attack on Ypres in Belgium. Despite heavy losses, British, French, and Belgian troops fend off the attack and the Germans do not break through. During the battle, the Germans send waves of inexperienced 17- to 20-year-old uh, volunteer soldiers, some fresh out of school. They advance shoulder to shoulder while singing patriotic songs only to be systematically gunned down in what the Germans themselves would later call the Massacre of the Innocents. By November, overall casualties will be 250,000 men, including nearly half of the British regular army. Holy shit! Uh, the Ottoman Empire, Turkey enters the war October 29th on the side of the Germans as three warships shell the Russian port of Odessa. Three days later, Russia declares war on Turkey. Russian and Turkish troops then prepare for battle along the common border of the Russian Caucasus and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, no October, November 1914, Germans and Austrians launch a combined offensive against the Russians on the Eastern Front. The German 9th Army targets Warsaw, Poland, but is opposed by six Russian armies and withdraws. The Austrians attack the Russians in uh, Galicia, a province in northeast Austria, with indecisive results. However, the Russians fail to press their advantage at Warsaw and instead begin a split counteroffensive, moving both southward against the Austrians in Galicia and, uh, probably Galicia, and northward toward Germany. The German 9th Army then regroups and cuts off the Russians at Lotz, Poland, halting their advance, forced in an eastward withdrawal by the Russians— November 1st, Austria invades Serbia. This is the third attempt to conquer the Serbs in retaliation for the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. The attempt to fa uh, fails like the two before it at the hands of highly motivated Serbs fighting on their home turf. The Austrians withdraw in mid-December after suffering over 220,000 casualties from the three failed invasions. 
The British Navy suffered its worst defeat in centuries during a sea battle in the Pacific on November 1st. Two British ships, the Monmouth and the Good Hope, are sunk with no survivors by a German squadron commanded by Admiral Graf von Spee. On November 5th, France and Britain declare war on the Ottoman Empire. Uh, November 6th, in the Persian Gulf, a major British offensive begins as the 6th Indian Division invades Mesopotamia. The objective is to protect the oil pipeline from Persia. Two weeks later, they capture the city of Basra. November 7th, in the Far East, the German naval base at uh, Xingtao is captured by the Japanese, aided by a British and Indian battalion. December 1914, the Western Front in Europe stabilizes in the aftermath of the First Battle of uh, Ypres as the Germans go on the defensive and transfer troops to the east to fight the Russians. The 450-mile-long Western Front stretches from the Channel Coast southward to Belgium and eastern France into Switzerland. Troops from both sides, uh, we, as we discussed, you know, construct those opposing trench fortifications, you know, protecting with barbed wire, machine gun nests, snipers, mortars, um, the 600-mile eastern front stretches from the Baltic Sea southward through East Prussia and Austria to the Carpathian Mountains. The Battle of the Falkland Islands occurs in December 8th, 1914. The British Navy warships destroyed the German squadron of Admiral Graf von Spee in the South Atlantic off the coast of Argentina. Von Spee and two sons serving in his squadron are killed in this battle. December 16th, Brush, uh, Britain suffers its first civilian casualties at home in the war as the German Navy bombards the coastal towns of Whitby, Hartlepool, and uh, Scarborough. Uh, killing 40 persons and wounding hundreds. And then uh, on December 25th, Christmas Day, a Christmas truce occurs between German and British soldiers in the trenches of northern France. All shooting stops as the soldiers exit their trenches, I'm not making this up, exchange gifts, sing Christmas carols, and engage in a soccer game. This will be the only Christmas truce of the war, as Allied commanders subsequently forbid fraternization with orders to shoot any violators. How fucking crazy is that? This is still 1914. The war has barely begun. Half a year old. How weird to pop out of trenches, exchange gifts, play soccer with the guys you've been shooting at for months. What What did you get me? Oh, it's nothing there, old chap. Ah, uh, what, what is this? I'm pretty sure it's your ear. Uh, remember I sliced it off when I jumped into a trench a few months back and uh, attacked you with a bayonet. Oh, that's right. Thank you for giving me my ear back. I wish I had something good to give back to you as well. No, this is great. My best friend's helmet. Uh, thanks for giving it back after he jumped in the trench with me and you blew his bloody head off. Hey, let's sing some songs. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, how lovely are the branches. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, we'll die in these trenches. It's fucking insane. It's fucking insane. What a weird thing to do. And then, and then the next day, right back to trying to kill these people. Let's get into 1915, the year two of the Great War. Uh, the initial Turkish offensive into, into Russia is thwarted as the Turkish Third Army suffers a, def suffers a defeat by the Russian army of the Caucasus uh, near Kars. The Russians then began a multi-pronged invasion of the Ottoman Empire from the from the Caucasus. Uh, uh, Caucasus. Fucking goddamn these words. So many fucking words in this one. Jesus. This, uh, this stuff gave me a lot of anxiety. Uh, January 9th, 1915, Germany begins an aerial bombing campaign against Britain using zeppelins. Bombing Britain with blimps. How weird is that? How terrifying is that? I guess it scared the shit out of the uh, British people. Seeing this giant fucking armored balloon, this death balloon float over your city, just start dropping bombs. For a lot of people, you know, this is probably the first time they'd seen any kind of uh, aircraft in the sky at all. Definitely the first time they'd seen uh, something that gigantic in the, in the sky uh, coming over to bomb them. Poison gas used for the first time in the war as Germans on the eastern front attacked Russian positions west of Warsaw, January 31st, 1915. 
Although the Germans fire 18,000 gas shells, they have little effect on the Russians as frigid temperatures prevent the gas from actually vaporizing. Go ahead, go ahead, Germans. Drop silly gas bombs on Russia. We like, we lose. Uh, oh, wait, why am I doing Arnold? I, I got confused. This is, this is a Russian guy. This is, uh, should be sounding more like Chuck D. Go ahead, Germans. Uh, drop silly gas bombs on Russia. We, we like, smell good like scented candles. You cannot kill tough Russia with such things. Or do you think we are Polish or something? It's too many countries, man. Too many countries to fucking keep track of. The Turks began forced deportations of Armenians. Even more people to think about now. Over the next two years, an estimated 1.5 million Armenians will either starve to death, die of thirst in the Syrian desert, or be murdered by Turkish troops and bandits during the Armenian genocide. On the Western Front, the French launched their second offensive uh, against German defense lines in uh, Champagne. Once again, they're hampered by the muddy winter weather, lack of heavy artillery. After a month of fighting, suffering 240,000 casualties, the exhausted French break off the offensive. Uh, the first German U-boat campaign of the war begins with unrestricted attacks against merchant and passenger ships in the waters around the British Isles. Within six months, Allied shipping losses at sea surpass the number of new ships being built. However, the unrestricted attacks also aroused the anger of the neutral United States as Americans are now killed. Uh, March, the British Navy imposes a total sea blockade on Germany, prohibiting all shipping imports, including food. Trying to fucking starve them out. Poison gas used for the first time in the Western Front. On April 22nd, as the German 4th Army attacks French positions around Ypres in northern Belgium, as they attack, the Germans release chlorine gas from over 500,000 cylinders, forming uh, poisonous green clouds that drift towards two French-African divisions. It's working this time. The temperature is not keeping these things from vaporizing. Lacking any protection, the French quickly retreat. Although this creates a five-mile-wide gap in Allied lines, the Germans fail to capitalize due to a lack of reserve troops and cautious frontline troops hesitant to fucking storm on into the gas clouds they've just built. Yeah, I get it. Why would you want to do that? Uh, British and Canadians then plug the gap but are unable to regain, regain any ground taken by the Germans. The British then withdraw to the second line of defense, leaving a priest in allied hands but virtually surrounded. Casualties in the second battle of a priest total 58,000 allies and 38,000 Germans. Just so many thousands of people just dying in every single battle. German U-boats sink their first American merchant ship on May 1st, the tanker Gulf Light in the Mediterranean Sea near Sicily. May 7th, 1915, a German U-boat torpedoes the British passenger liner, the uh, uh, Lucy T. Uh, fucking Lucy, Lusitania, Lusitania, I think it's Lusitania. Fuck all these words. Uh, off the Irish coast, Lusitania. Uh, it sinks in 18 months, drowning 1,201 persons, including 128 Americans. President Woodrow Wilson subsequently sends four diplomatic protests to Germany. And by the way, I write these uh, pronunciation guides. They're all over the notes if you look on the app. All over this uh, the notes today. But you know what? You can't read those quickly. At least I can't. Oh man, uh, I don't even. Uh, I don't even understand how newscasters, you know, they have to do world news. I guess you just have to study. I guess that's that more important than just goofing around and being a, being a jokester. If you have to get just words right, you know, all the time for a living. Um, Complimenting the French offensive at uh, Vimy, British and Indian troops launched their second attack against the Germans around uh, Neuve-Chapelle in the Artois, May 9th. However, without sufficient artillery support to weaken the German frontline defenses, the advancing soldiers are decimated by German machine gun fire. The attack is called off the very next day after 11,000 casualties. May 15th, 1915, British and Indian troops launch another attack against Germans in the Artois. The attack is preceded by a 60-hour continual artillery bombardment. But the troops advanced just 1,000 yards while suffering 16,000 casualties. 60 hours of shelling, two and a half days of shelling the shit out of the enemy, 
Then throw in all these thousands of men and you still only make it a thousand yards. Italy enters the war on the side of the Allies by declaring war on Austria-Hungary, May 23rd, 1915. The Italians then launch offensives along the 400-mile common border between Austria and Italy. The better equipped Austrians take advantage of the mountainous terrain to establish strong defensive positions all along the border. The Italians then focus their attacks on the mountain passes at Trentino. There we go. Italy. I like, I like, I like how you put your words together. Trentino. In the valley of the uh, Isonzo River. Why can't you, why can't you fucking all get it, countries? Belgium with your stupid fucking words? Why don't you pull your heads out of your asses and change your entire language and culture to suit my linguistic preferences? Uh, May 31st, 1915, the first aerial bombing of London occurs as German Zeppelins kill 28 persons. The death balloons are back. Killer bomb balloons. I, I hate balloons. I hate regular balloons. I can only imagine how much I hate German death balloons. Uh, June 16th, the French 10th Army launches its second attempt to seize uh, Vimy uh, Ridge from the Germans in the Artois. This time, the troops encounter an intense artillery bombardment from the improved defenses of the German 6th Army. The French achieved their initial objective, but then succumbed to a German counterattack. It's just constant push-pull, just as they did in the first attempt at Vimy. The French call off the Vimy offensive with 100,000 casualties. The Germans suffer 60,000. 100,000 young men's lives lost. Uh, just as one offensive, uh, but just one of the many countries fighting in this war, man, the scope of this war is staggering. I grew up in a town of less than 500 people, over 200 of my hometowns, all dead in just one battle, (laughs) just one side of one battle. Russia creates a central war industries committee on July 1st to oversee production and address a severe shortage of artillery shells and rifles on the front line. Uh, Russian soldiers in the field without rifles can only get them from fellow soldiers after they are killed or wounded. Can you imagine Sent into World War One without even a gun. You want you like you like to have gun? You like to have weapon? You you kill someone. Kill someone with Russian hands, with strong Russian hands. You take their weapon. That's how you get weapon now. You want weapon? You fight for weapon. Ah! Oh, they got tra- Oh, they got trenches. Oh, they got the bombs. Oh, they stabbing the gas and the flames. You you, you sound like weak German. You sound like weak Paul. You get in there. You wrestle them. Wrestle Germans to ground. You take the gun. You fight. Make Russia proud. Fucking Russians are insane. In Africa, uh, the German Southwest African colony of Namibia. I got that one right. I got that one. I got that one right. Okay. Taken by the Allies following 11 months of fighting between the Germans and South African and Rhodesian troops loyal to the British on July 9th. July 13th on the Eastern Front, the next phase of the combined Austro-German offensive against the Russians. Begins in northern Poland with Austria, Austro-Germans advancing towards Warsaw. The Russian army now gets weaker by the day due to chronic supply shortages. <laughs> yeah, like they don't have any guns. And declining morale. Yeah, I bet their morale. Oh, you feel sad. You got no food, no boots, no weapons. Oh, I got nothing to do fights. Oh, you make me sick. Once again, the Russians retreat. Also order a uh, total civilian evacuation of Poland. Polish territory, I guess, the results in great hardship for the Polish people as they leave their homes and head eastward, clogging the roads and hampering the movement of Russian troops. I, I, and I am done mocking the Poles, Poles right now. feeling bad for these poor people. Uh, Warsaw, taken by the Austro-German troops August 5th. It ends a century of Russian control of the city. After taking Warsaw, the Austro-Germans move on to capture several other Polish cities. By the end of September, Russian troops are driven out of Poland, back to the original lines from which they had begun the war in 1914. For the time being, the battered Russian army has effectively been eliminated as an offensive threat on the Eastern Front, freeing the Germans to focus more war efforts on the Western Front. September 5th, 1915, Russian Tsar Nicholas II takes personal command of the Russian army, hoping to rally his faltering troops. You know, 
Give him some, give him some speeches. Come on, you guys. I know you're sad. You have no clothes. You have no food. Uh, you've uh, had no sex for many months. You have no weapons. But just think it's Russia. You do have little dolls that you take apart to make smaller dolls. And that is something. That is more than nothing. Fight for Russia. Um, losses to the Tsar's army from the Austro-German offensives in uh, Galicia, Poland, uh, include over f- oh, 1.4 million casualties, 750,000 captured. So speech doesn't have a lot of effects, you know? They're like, yeah, fuck, listen, asshole, we still don't have guns. Uh, Russia is also weakened economically by the loss of Poland's industrial and agricultural output. You know, they don't got it anymore. Additionally, the uh, ongoing mass exodus of Russian troops and civilians from Poland called the Great Retreat spurs dangerous political and social unrest in Russia, undermining the rule of the Tsar and his imperial government. Because if you recall from the uh, Rasputin suck that World War I would bring about the end of the Russian monarchy, uh, Bulgaria enters the war on Germany's side with an eye towards invading neighboring uh, Serbia on September 6th. Thus far in the war, Austria-Hungary has tried but failed, you know, three times to conquer Serbia in retaliation for the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. Now the Austrians, aided by Germany and Bulgaria, plan to try again. With the addition of Bulgaria, Germany now has three allies in the war, including Austria, Hungary, and Turkey. This alliance, called the Central Powers, due to geographical location, uh, primarily in Central Europe. Uh, the invasion of Serbia begins as Austro-German troops attack from the north on October 6th. Five days later, the Bulgarians attack from the east. The outnumbered Serbs have their poorly supplied troops stretched too thinly to defend both fronts. Belgrade then falls to the Germans and the Bulgarians capture uh, Kumanova, severing the country's north-south rail line. And this leaves the overwhelmed Serbian troops no option other than to retreat westward through the mountains into Albania. Uh, January 1916, President Woodrow Wilson begins an effort to organize a peace conference in Europe. No one gives a shit. Uh, In West Africa, February 18th, the German colony of Cameroon falls to the French and British following 17 months of fighting. This leaves only one German colony remaining in France known as German East Africa. April 18th, 1916, President Woodrow Wilson threatens to sever diplomatic ties between the United States and Germany following the sinking of the passenger ferry Sussex by a U-boat in the English Channel. Uh, the attack marked the beginning of a new U-boat campaign around the British Isles, but in response to uh, uh, Wilson, you know, the Germans do call off the U-boats. <laughs> uh, I don't know why that's just funny to me. Like, hey, guys, we're not going to trade with you if you keep fucking killing us. I don't, okay, all right, all right. All right. Now, you know, my voice is mixed up. Now I'm fucking Chikatilo and Schwarzenegger all in my head. In the Middle East, the five-month siege at Kut al-Amara in Mesopotamia ends as 13,000 British and Indian soldiers now on the verge of starvation surrendered to the Turks. The largest ever surrendered by the British Army comes after four failed attempts by British relief troops to break through the surrounded garrison. And I, yeah, that's April 29th. Uh, March, May 25th, 1916, the era of the all-volunteer British Army ends as universal conscription now takes effect, requiring all eligible British men between the ages of 19 and 40. Ha! I would just squeak by. Uh, ex- uh, to report. At report for duty, excluding men working in agriculture, mining, or the railroads. Uh, the main German and British naval fleets clash in the Battle of uh, Jutland in the North Sea on May 31st, as both sides try but fail to score a decisive victory. Forward battle cruisers from the British Grand Fleet are initially lured southward towards the German High Seas Fleet, then completely turn around, luring the entire German fleet northward. Uh, northward, as they get near, the, the British blast away at the German forward ships. The Germans return fire. Two fleets fire furiously at each other. However, the Germans, aware they are outgunned by the larger British fleet, disengage, abruptly turn away. In the dead of night, the Germans withdraw entirely. The British do not uh, risk a pursuit and instead head home. Both sides claim victory. 
Although the Germans sank 14 of the 151 British ships while losing 11 of 99 ships, the British Navy retained its dominance in the North Sea, and the naval blockade of Germany continues for the war's duration. You're not getting any food, not from these boats. Uh. Uh, Germans resumed their offensive near uh, Verdun, France, on June 22nd using poison uh, uh, phosgene gas at the start of the attack. They initially take the village of uh, Fleury, just two miles north of Verdun, uh, but further advanced southward is halted by a strong French counterattack. Uh, Verdun has now become a battle of attrition for both sides after months of continual fighting with the death toll already approaching 500,000 men. That's just in this one little area. Uh, July 1st, the British Army suffers the, the worst single-day death toll in its history as 18,800 soldiers are killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. The loss has come as 13 attacking divisions encounter German defenses that are still intact despite the seven-day bombardment designed to knock them out. The British also attacked in broad daylight, advancing in line shoulder to shoulder, only to be systematically uh, mowed down by German machine gunners. The Somme offensive quickly becomes a battle of attrition as British and French troops make marginal gains against the Germans but repeatedly fail to break through the entire front as planned. July 10th, the Germans attack again at Verdun, using poison gas, advance towards Fort Seville. Uh, four days later, the French counterattack and halt the Germans, just back and forth, back and forth. The British launch a night attack against German positions on July 13th uh, along a 3.5-mile portion of the Somme front. After advancing nearly 1,000 yards, the advances halted. The Germans regrouped their defenses. Two days later, the British once again penetrate the German line, advance to high wood, but are then pushed back again. Back and forth, over and over. The war has been going on now for a little over two years with no real progress being made on the Western Front by either side. Just so many deaths, millions by the war's end. The ground must have just been stained red with blood. August 27th, 1916, Romania declares war on the Central Powers, uh, begins an invasion of Austria-Hungary through the Carpathian Mountains. The Romanians faced little opposition initially and advanced 50 miles into Transylvania where Dracula comes out of his castle and asks everyone to please keep the noise down. He appreciates the extra necks to suck blood out of, but he can't sleep in his daytime coughing with all this yelling. Uh, of course, that not happened. That didn't happen. Uh, Italy declares war on Germany, uh, thus expanding the scope of its. <laughs> Again, in moments like that, I do wonder. There's people working directly above, above me, and all they hear is just some dude randomly screaming out of nowhere about Dracula and shelling. Uh, <laughs> August 28, 1916, Italy declares war on Germany, uh, expanding the scope of its military activities beyond the Italian-Austrian front. August 29th, Germany's entire economy is placed under the Hindenburg Plan, allowing the military to exercise dic dic uh, dic dictator, dictator, Jesus Christ, dictator's a word, dictatorial, dictatorial, dictatorial. I think I, I, I spelled it wrong, but it didn't show up wrong. Dictatorial? I fucking, Joe, are you, do you know how to say this word? Exercise dictatorial? Whatever. Joe, Joe doesn't know either. Uh, he's saying in my ears. Uh, the Hindenburg Plan. <laughs> allowing the military to exercise dictatorial, whatever, style, powers. I don't know why that word all of a sudden is like, I don't fucking know how to speak languages anymore. Uh, to control the labor force, munitions production, food distribution, most aspects of daily life. All that matters is that the whole country is, you know, being used for, for war now. War is the only focus for Germany now. How can you help the war effort uh, is the only important question asked of German citizens. Uh, September 15th, the first ever appearance of tanks on a battlefield occurs as British troops renew the Somme offensive attack German positions along a five-mile front, advancing 2,000 yards with tank support now. 
The British developed tanks feature two small side cannons, four machine guns, operated by an eight-man crew. As the infantry advances, individual tanks provide support by blasting and rolling over the German barbed wire, piercing the frontline defense, then roll along the length of the trench, raking the German soldiers with machine gun fire. Man, vicious. November 7th, American voters re-elect President Woodrow Wilson, who had campaigned on the slogan, he kept us out of war. Not for much longer. Uh, November 18th, 1916, the Battle of the Somme ends upon the first snowfall as the British and French decide to cease the offensive. Yeah, this is going nowhere for anybody. By now, the Germans have been pushed back just a few miles along the entire 15-mile front, but the major breakthrough the Allies had planned never occurs. Uh, Both sides each suffered over 600,000 casualties during the five-month battle among the injured German soldiers. Too bad he didn't die. Corporal Adolf Hitler, uh, wounded by shrapnel. December 7th, 1916, Lloyd George becomes Britain's new prime minister. His uh, new war cabinet immediately begins to organize the country for, quote, total war. December 18th, 1916, uh, President Woodrow Wilson caps off a year-long effort to organize a peace conference in Europe by asking the combatants to outline their peace terms. No one gives a shit. Uh, February 3rd, 1917, the United States severs diplomatic ties with Germany after a U-boat sinks the American grain ship uh, Housatonic. Seven more American ships are sunk in February and March as the Germans sink 500 ships in just 60 days. Holy shit, man. Two months, 500 ships. Over eight ships a day. February 25th, 1917, the Middle East newly reinforced and replenished British troops retake Kut al-Almara and Mesopotamia from outnumbered Turks. The British then continue their advance and capture Baghdad, followed by Ramadi and Tikrit. March 8th, the mass protest by Russian civilians in Petrograd, a.k.a. St. Petersburg, erupts into a revolution against Tsar Nicholas II and the war. We covered that in that Rasputin suck, man. War not going well for the Russians at all. Within days, Russian soldiers mutiny and join the revolution against the monarchy. Uh, March 15, 1917, the 300-year-old Romanov dynasty in Russia uh, ends upon the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II from the throne in his place. A new uh, (laughs) democratically-minded provisional government is established. Great Britain, France, United States, and Italy rush to recognize the new government and hope Russia will stay in the war and maintain a huge presence on the Eastern Front. They do for a little bit. Uh, British combat pilots on the Western Front suffer a 50% casualty rate during bloody April in 1917 as the Germans shoot down 150 of their fighter planes. The average life expectancy of an Allied fighter pilot is now three weeks, resulting from aerial dogfights and accidents. These things are new. They're crashing a lot. Uh, April 2nd. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson appears before the U.S. Congress and gives a speech saying the world must be made safe for democracy. Ask Congress for a declaration. Now, no more peace. Declaration of war against Germany. Four days after President Wilson's speech, the United States of America declares war on Germany nearly three years after the war began. April 9, 1917, the British Army has one of its most productive days of the war is the Third Army, supported by Canadian and Australian troops. Uh, love our Australian and Canadian listeners, makes rapid advances north of the Hindenburg Line at Aris and Vimy on the Western Front. The expansive first day achievement in snowy weather includes a three and a half mile territorial gain and the capture of Vimy Ridge by Canadians. However, similar to past offensives, the inability to capitalize on initial success and maintain momentum gives uh, Germany an opportunity to regroup and further gains are thwarted. The British suffer 150,000 casualties during the offensive while the Germans suffer 100,000. So maybe... Maybe that four-mile-per-hour tank, maybe not fast enough to, to capitalize on initial victories. Uh, April 16th, political agitator Vladimir Lenin arrives back in Russia following 12 years of exile in Switzerland. Special train transportation for his return provided by the Germans in hope that anti-war Lenin and his radical Bolshevik party will disrupt Russia's new provincial government, which they will. 
Uh, Lenin joins other Bolsheviks in Petrograd who have also returned uh, recently from exile, including Joseph Stalin, previous suck. Uh, May 18th, the Selective Service Act is passed by the U.S. Congress authorizing a draft. The small U.S. Army, presently consisting of 145,000 men, will be enlarged to 4 million men via the draft. Ah, man, I would think that most uh, American dudes would be scared shitless to get drafted in 1917. I mean, they've been reading about people getting burned and gassed and rotten in trenches for three years now. No, thank you. But a lot of Americans were the children of parents born in one of the countries the Germans and Austro-Hungarians were fighting, so maybe they were excited to uh, defend their ancestral lands. However, if you're the son of Germans or Austro-Hungarians, Bulgarians, oh, man, the thought of getting drafted must really suck. Uh, May 19, 1917, the provincial government of Russia announces it will stay in the war. However, Russian soldiers and peasants are now flocking to Lenin's Bolshevik party, which opposes the war um, and opposes the provincial uh, government. Uh, May 27th through June 1st, uh, the mutinous atmosphere in the French army erupts into open insubordination. We've got some uh, insubordination with France now. Soldiers refuse orders to advance. More than half of the French divisions of the Western Front experience some degree of disruption by disgruntled soldiers. Angry over the unending battles of attrition and appalling living conditions we talked about in the muddy rat and lice infested trenches. Yeah, I fucking bet they were sick of it. Three years of that shit. Mass arrests followed by several firing squad executions do quell the uprisings. Uh, but while the French army is in disarray, the main burden of the Western Front defending it falls squarely upon the British. June 3rd, London suffers its highest civilian casualties of the war as German airplanes now bomb the city, killing 158 civilians, wounding 425. The British react to the new bombing campaign by forming home defense fighter squadrons, later conduct retaliatory bombing raids against the Germans by British planes based in France. June 25th, the first American troops land in France. U.S.A. Uh, July uh, 2nd, Greece declares war in the Central Powers following the abdication of pro-German King Constantine, who was replaced by pro-Allied administration. Greek soldiers now added to the Allied ranks. September 1st, on the Eastern Front, the final Russian battle in the war begins as the Germans attack toward Riga, Latvia. The German 8th Army tries a new tactic. They bypass any strong points as they move forward. Stormtroop battalions armed with light machine guns, grenades, flamethrowers focus on quickly infiltrating the rear areas to disrupt communication, take out the artillery. The Russian 12th Army is unable to hold itself together. Man, these guys are, yeah, they're fucking tired. Their country's in disarray. They probably got no guns, a lot of them. Uh, They can't hold themselves together amid the stormtroop attacks and abandon Riga. And then they begin a rapid retreat along the uh, Davina River pursued by the Germans. September 20th, a revised British strategy begins at Ypres, designed to wear down the Germans. It features a series of intensive, narrowly focused artillery and troop attacks with limited objectives to be launched every six days. The first such attack along the Meaning Road near uh, 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 Gelevelt produces a gain of about 1,000 yards with 22,000 British and Australian casualties. Subsequent attacks yield similar results. It's just crazy. Losing 22,000 men to death or dismemberment to gain 1,000 yards. How depressing. Uh, October 12th, the priest offensive culminates around the village of Passchendaele, uh, Belgium, as Australian and New Zealand troops die by the thousands while attempting to press forward across a battlefield of liquid mud, advancing only 100 yards. Steady October rain creates a slippery quagmire in which wounded soldiers routinely drown in mud-filled shell craters. Nightmare. These guys are living a nightmare. November 6th and 7th, in Russia, Bolsheviks led by Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky overthrow the provincial government in what becomes known as the October Revolution. 
Uh, they established a non-democratic Soviet government uh, because it's October 24th, 25th, according to the Russian calendar at that time. Uh, they established a non-democratic Soviet government based on Marxism, which prohibits private enterprise and private land ownership. Lenin announces that Soviet Russia will immediately end its involvement in the war and renounces all existing treaties with the, ally- with the allies. And, oh, Germany's so happy. Germany's so happy they got one less person to group to fight. Uh, November 15th, 1917, Georges Clemenceau becomes France's new prime minister at age 76, nicknamed the Tiger. Le Tiger. Uh, when asked about his agenda, he will simply answer, I wage war. Apparently, they wanted a strong, simple leader. How do you plan on fixing the economy? I wage war on money. Education. How will you improve education? I wage war on students. What about equal rights for women? I wage war on women. Uh, Jerusalem, captured by the British on December 9th. This ends four centuries of Ottoman Turkish Empire control. Uh, December 15th, 1917, Soviet Russia signs an armistice with Germany. With Russia's departure from the Eastern Front, 44 German divisions now become available to be redeployed to the Western Front in time for Ludendorff's spring offensive. March 3rd, uh, March 3rd, 1918, at Brest-Litovsk, uh, Soviet Russia signs a treaty with Germany formally ending its participation in the war. Harsh terms imposed by the Germans forced the Russians to yield a quarter of their pre-war territory and over half of Russia's industries to the Germans. March 21st, Germany's all-out gamble for victory begins upon the launch of the first of a series of successive spring offensives on the Western Front. The St. Michael Offensive, named after Germany's patron saint, begins after a five-hour, 6,000-gun artillery bombardment as 65 divisions from the German 2nd, 17th, 18th armies attacked the British 3rd and 5th armies along a 60-mile front in the Somme. At first, it seems destined to succeed as the thinly stretched British 5th Army is quickly overrun and wrecked. Using effective stormtroop tactics, the Germans recapture all of the ground they lost in 1916 during the Battle of the Somme and press forward. However, during the two-week offensive, the British 3rd Army manages to hold itself together and prevents the Germans from taking Arras, Arras and Amiens' key objectives of the offensive. April 1st, uh, 1918, British's Royal Air Force is founded upon the merging of the Royal Flying Corps and Royal Navy Service. And by now, the British aviation, aviation industry has become the world leader. Uh, so no April Fool's. No, they really did that. Uh, April 21st, Germany's Red Baron, Manfred von Reithoven, shot down and killed by the British. This German ace was credited with shooting down 80 Allied aircraft. Some historians think he shot down actually over 100 airplanes. Uh, he was buried with military honors by the opposing British. Dude, 80 fucking planes shot down by one pilot. And those little dogfights, you know, or more all by the time he's 25. Man, tough sport to be in though, man. Dogfights. You know, those aerial, man, one loss and you're dead. 80 and one, a record of 80 and one gets you just as dead as a record of 0 and one. Uh, May 28th, 29th, troops of the U.S. 1st Infantry Division capture the village of uh, Contini- uh, Contini from the Germans and hold it. The American Expeditionary Force, the AEF, is commanded by General John Pershing, determined to maintain all American fighting units rather than parcel out American troops to the British and French armies, other than that one we, t- we heard about, other than the, the Hellfighters. By now, 650,000 American soldiers have arrived in France with the number growing uh, by 10,000 per day. The Battle of Bellu Wood, involving the U.S. 2nd Infantry uh, Division, begins on June 6th during the three-week fight against the Germans. Americans experienced their first significant battlefield casualties with 5,000 killed, but they did win this battle. June 15th, Austrian troops begin an offensive along the uh, Piave River in Italy 
At the urging of the Germans, although suffering from lack of food, horses, and supplies, they crossed the river and established a 12-mile front, but then realized they could— they cannot hold it against the now revitalized Italian army and withdraw after suffering 150,000 casualties. Following this, Austrian soldiers in Italy began deserting. Mid-1918, soldiers from all sides get fucked up by the flu. Uh, yeah, flu of 1918, no joke. Troop losses from the flu epidemic soon exceed combat casualties, especially weakening the hard-pressed German army. The uh, worldwide epidemic lasts for about a year, killing an estimated 20 million people. Then vanishes as strangely as it, as it uh, had appeared. Ain't that a bitch, man, especially for dudes in the trenches. On top of all the other horrors, now you have the worst, deadliest flu outbreak. Now you're shitting yourself to death in an already shit-filled trench. Ah, July 15th to the 17th, 1918, the last German offensive of the war. The, uh, the Marne-Reims offensive begins with a two-pronged attack around Reims, France, by 52 divisions. The Allies have been anticipating this battle in lion wait. The German attack to the east of Reims, crushed that day by the French. To the west of Reims, the advance is blocked by the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division, followed by a successful French and American counterattack. S- September 12, 1918, the first standalone attack by Americans occurs as the U.S. 1st Army attacks the southernmost portion of the Western Front in France. The offensive is supported by an unprecedented 1,476 Allied aircraft used as part of a coordinated air ground attack. Within 36 hours, the Americans take 100, uh, excuse me, take 15,000 prisoners, capture over 400 pieces of artillery, and the Germans withdraw. The Allies push the Bulgarians. And by the way, if, I'm, if, I, if I have a weird pronunciation of uh, artillery, uh, some people have pointed out, just fucking deal with it, right? Some, sometimes it's just the way I say shit. Uh, the Allies on September 15th push the Bulgarians out of Serbia as French, Serbian, and Italian troops make rapid gains, advancing nearly 20 miles northward from Greece in three days. Bulgarian troops attempting to redeploy westward throughout the narrow Kosturino uh, Pass are relentlessly bombarded by airplanes and overall troop morale collapses. Meanwhile, political turmoil strikes at home as anti-war riots erupt in Bulgaria's cities along with Russian-style revolutionary fervor that results in the proclamation of local Soviets. Uh, September 19th, 1918, in the Middle East, the Allies launch a cavalry attack to push the Turks out of Palestine. Australian and Indian uh, cavalry divisions smash through the Turkish defenses around uh, Megiddo on the first day and gallop northward as British infantry follow while the RAF and Arab fighters disrupt communication and supply lines. As the Turkish armies collapse, they withdraw northward towards Damascus with the Allies in pursuit. September 26th, the U.S. 1st Army, French 4th Army, begin a joint offensive to clear out the strongly uh, defended corridor between the Meuse River and the Argonne Forest. Here, the Germans do not fall back, and the battle soon resembles action from earlier years in the war. Amid a steady rain, the troops advance yard by yard over the muddy, crater-filled terrain, with 75,000 American casualties suffered over six weeks of fighting. September 28th, confronted by the unstoppable strength of the Allies and faced with the prospect of outright military defeat on the Western Front, General Ludendorff suffers a nervous breakdown at his headquarters, losing all hope for victory. He informs his superior, Paul von Hindenburg, the war must be ended. The next day, Ludendorff, accompanied by Hindenburg, meet with the Kaiser, urge him to end the war. The Kaiser's army is becoming weaker by the day amid irreversible troop losses, declining discipline and battle readiness due to exhaustion, illness, food shortages, desertions, drunkenness. It's like, fuck it, let's get drunk, right? We might not be alive much longer. The Kaiser takes heed from Hindenburg and Ludendorff and agrees that they need an armistice. September 29th, Bulgaria signs an armistice with the Allies becoming the first of the Central Powers to quit the First World War. October 4th, 1918, President Woodrow Wilson receives a request from the German government sent via the Swiss asking for armistice discussions on the basis of his 14 points. 
The Germans have bypassed the French and British. They think he's going to be a little more lenient. They're disappointed, though, when Wilson responds with a list of demands to preclude discussions, including German withdrawal from all occupied territories and a total halt of U-boat attacks. Now, they're not quite ready for that. On October 5th, the Allies break through the last remnants of the Hindenburg Line, the system of trenches and fortifications on the Western Front, finally breaking through those trenches. October 6th, a provisional government proclaims the state of Yugoslavia, signaling the beginning of the breakup of the old Habsburg-Austro-Hungarian Empire in Central Europe, which had existed for six centuries. Shit is changing in Europe. October 7th, Poland! Ah, here we go. Poland, formerly part of the Russian Empire, proclaims itself as an independent state. Good for you, Polish people. Good for you. October 13th, the Germans engage in a general retreat along a 60-mile portion of the Western Front in France, stretching from San Quentin southward to the Argonne Forest as French and Ar- American armies steadily advance. October 14th, German, uh, Germany abandons positions along the Belgian coast and northernmost France as the British and Belgians steadily advance. October 29th, the Czechs declare their independence from Austria. Two days later, Slovakia declares independence from Hungary. Czechoslovakia is subsequently formed. October 30th, Turkey signs an armistice with the Allies, becoming the second of the Central Powers to quit the war. November 1st, Belgrade is liberated by French and Serbian troops. Uh, November 3rd, the only remaining ally of Germany, Austria-Hungary, signs an armistice. I mean, they're losing the fucking big chunks of their land. They sign an armistice with Italy. They leave Germany alone now in the war. November 9th, six days later, the Kaiser's imperial government collapses in ruin as a German republic is proclaimed with Frederick uh, Ebert, uh, heading the new provisional government, Kaiser Wil- uh, Wilhelm then seeks refuge in Holland amid concerns for his safety. Um, November 11th, 1918 at 5, 10 a.m. in a railway car at Compagnie, France, the Germans sign the armistice, which is effective at 11 a.m. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 11, 11, 11. Fighting continues all along the Western Front until precisely 11 o'clock. Then, then it's like they clock out. Uh, sadly, 2,000 casualties experienced that day by all sides. What a fucking waste. Like, it's over. They know it's over, but they still kill each other. Artillery barrages also erupt at 11 a- as 11 a.m. draws near as soldiers yearn to claim they fired the very last shot in the war. November 12th, uh, one last little final battle occurs as, uh, as Germans in Africa encounter British troops in northern Rhodesia. Sadly, news of the armistice has not reached the Germans there yet. So more die just after the war is actually over. Following the end of the war in early 1919, the League of Nations is founded, championed by President Wilson as a means of peaceably resolving future conflicts. Germany is excluded for the time being. June 28, 1919, at the Palace of Versailles in France, a German delegation signs the Treaty of Versailles, formally ending the war. Its 230 pages contain terms that have little in common with Wilson's 14 points as the Germans had hoped. Germans back home react with mass demonstrations against the perceived harshness especially clauses that uh, assess sole blame for the war on Germany. Well, tough shit, Germany. Uh, April 1921, the Reparations Commission announces Germany must pay back allies $28 billion over 42 years via annual payments of cash and goods such as coal and timber. Uh, January 20, uh, 1923, after Germany falls behind on its war reparation payments, French and Belgian troops occupy the rural industrial region inside Germany. Workers there react by walking off the job. In a defiant show of support, the German government sends money to out-of-work protesters. However, this soon leads to ruinous inflation and devaluation of the German Deutschmark. Eventually, $4 billion to the dollar as the, as the government prints an unlimited amount of money to try and satisfy its needs. And then things continue just to spiral downward for Germany until the uh, total economic collapse in 1929 causes further turmoil that generates popular support for Hitler, resulting in the election of Nazis to the government and the path to World War II is now set. 
And that takes us out of a fucking whopping time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Wow, what an epic giant war, man. I'm I'm tired. I've just been talking about it. Uh, I know there wasn't many, as many jokes as usual in this one, but geez, it, was just, it just felt too confusing to take too many tangents in this already so complicated and complex suck. Uh, this isn't like someone's life, you know, you can just follow. This is a long series of many developments that lead to a long, very complex, so many multifaceted battles, war. Uh, and we still glossed over so very much, but I, but I hope I didn't make it too complicated, and I hope I didn't make it overly simplified. Hopefully most of you understand World War I a lot better now. I know I do. Uh, I didn't, I, I really didn't know shit about it before this suck. Uh, this war that ended a hundred years ago, hundred years ago, and one day ago, uh, exactly when this episode is released. The casualties suffered by the participants of World War I dwarf those of previous wars. I mean, this is unreal. Some uh, eight and a half million soldiers died as a result of wounds uh, and or disease. The greatest number of casualties and wounds were inflicted by artillery, followed by small arms, then poison gas, the bayonet, which was relied on by the pre-war French army as the decisive weapon actually produced few casualties. Uh, war was increasingly mechanized from 1914 uh, on and produced casualties even when nothing important was happening. And even a quiet day in the Western Front, many, you know, hundreds of allied and German soldiers would die. The heaviest loss of life for a single day occurred on that, yeah, July 1st, 1916. That We talked about the Battle of the Somme when the British army suffered nearly 60,000 casualties. Uh, check out these country-by-country country total number of soldiers killed and wounded. And these numbers change, by the way, when you go from report to report, just because it, it is kind of, it's guesstimations. They didn't have exact numbers. Uh, Russia, though, 1.7 million soldiers uh, killed, another 5 million wounded. British, uh, they gave over 900,000 soldiers' lives to the war, over 2 million more wounded. France lost over 1.3 million young men, over 4 million more wounded. Italy sacrificed 650,000 uh, of their young men and nearly a million more wounded. Romania gave over 330,000 sons and brothers Another 120,000 wounded, 45,000 Serbians died fighting, over 130,000 more of them wounded. The United States lost over 115,000 young men and more than 200,000 others were wounded. And these are just some of the allied countries' losses. I mean, look at the central powers. Germany lost over 1.7 million soldiers' lives with over 4 million more wounded. Austria-Hungary lost 1.2 million soldiers' lives, over 3.6 million wounded. Turkey lost 325,000 men, another 400,000 wounded. Bulgaria lost 87,500 men, over 150,000 others wounded. Altogether, over again, over 8.5 million soldiers died. Some historians actually place that number closer to 10 million. Uh, over 21 million others wounded, uh, another 7.7 .7 million either taken prisoner or gone missing, Plus, an additional 7 million civilians were killed. The total number of both civilian and military casualties estimated to be around 37, 40 million people. The entire combined population of everyone in Washington, Idaho, Oregon, Utah, and Montana, all dead. Another 20 million wounded. Uh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Thanks for taking a second, you know. Thanks for taking, well, thanks for taking a couple hours to listen to this episode, uh, 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 you know, 100 years after all this ended. Long after everyone who involved who was involved in it died, uh, I truly hope all their souls are resting in peace. I uh, hope the world never experiences anything as ugly as this war ever, ever, ever again. Uh, no idiots of the internet today. This is too much. I had to spend. I, I had to spend all my time on the on the war. Uh, now time for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. 
Number one, the key ingredients that led up to World War One were a romanticism of the notion of war, the rise of early 20th century European nationalism, patriotism good, nationalism bad, always, uh, propaganda towards other nations, the short war theory, you know, uh, it's going to be quick and easy, uh, notions of imperialism, you know, you'd be lucky to have our culture, uh, the rise of multinational alliances and the instability of the Balkans. Or if you want to simplify things, it was the fucking Germans. Uh, number two, uh, June 28th, 1914, the assassination of Archduke, an heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Fran Ferdinand, is really what kicked things off in World War I. Number three, trench warfare blows. Unless you like drowning in mud, being covered by lice, being chewed on by rats, or losing your feet to trench foot. Vote no on trench warfare. Number four, the war came to an end with Germany's surrender on November 11th, 1918, and that is why November 11th is Veterans Day. And World War I left a whole shit ton of veterans in its wake. Over 65 million total troops fought in that war. That is such a crazy number. Number five, new info. Germany not only lost the war and a lot of troops, but also a lot of German shepherds. Over 215,000 German shepherds would fight in the Great War. German shepherd uh, carrying battalions used the dogs extensively on the Western Front for offensives on French and British trenches. One infamous unit, the 75th Hun Division, had over 3,000 German shepherds and 2,000 German stormtroopers. The dogs alone were credited with over 400 casualties. I'd like that, getting eaten by a fucking dog in a trench. In a Somme Valley battle on June 3rd, 1917, the Germans even, Germans even fitted the dogs with masks uh, for gas attacks. In the fall of 1917, however, French forces realized uh, they could just throw tainted meat into the no man's land between trenches and poison the dogs. They poisoned over 100,000 dogs this way in the winter of 1917-1918. And then in the spring of 1918, the French realized they also could use animals and they used cats to get the dogs to bark and give away German positions. And the 107th Puss in Boots Division was formed. 300 French soldiers, 35,000 tabby cats, one podcast host lying his ass off <laughs> about all of this. Ah, uh, get the fuck out of dogs with gas masks running around trenches. No, it never happened. Dogs were not part of the German <laughs> infantry. Not like that. And there was not a French uh, Puss in Boots cat division. There were actually, though, hundreds of thousands of cats put into French trenches. Not, not joking now. Uh, to counteract the rat problem. They were actually brought in for the war effort. Uh, and also, dogs were actually used in the war generally as sentry dogs and casualty dogs by, by all sides. Praise Bojangles. Bojangles are three-legged, one-eyed, immortal mascot and warrior. Would have won the whole war himself if he would have fought in it. Where was Bojangles when World War I was happening? Uh, sentry dogs uh, would stay with one soldier or guard and were taught to give a warning sound such as growling or barking when they sense a stranger in the area or close to camp. Uh, Dobermans, a lot were used as sentry dogs by the Germans, <laughs> actually. Uh, casualty dogs were trained to find wounded or dying soldiers on the battlefield. They carried medical equipment to, so an injured soldier could treat themselves. And they, and they would also stay beside a dying soldier to keep them company. Oh, my God, man. Dogs are the fucking best. And there are some pretty adorable pictures of dogs uh, helping out soldiers in World War I on the web. If you want uh, to look at something happy about World War I, praise Bojangles indeed. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Holy shit. World War One Did it. Did it. Woo. Sucked. Didn't know if I finished that one in time. That's a big suck. Almost broke my damn jaw. Just trying to suck all those dudes fighting. Just sucking so many dudes. Sucking 65 million muddy trench fighting dudes. That's a lot to get in your mouth. Uh, thanks again to the Time Suck team. High Priest is the Suck. Harmony Velikamp. Jesse. Guardian of Grammar Dobner. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. 
uh, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan. The guy's a bit elixir. Designing the app, keeping the website going, Danger Brain, Space Lizards, and Merch Wizards Axis Apparel. Writing little notes on people's merch when they send it out. Um, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, boss of everything. Uh, Polish Polish wizard. <laughs> Another special thanks to OG Bojangles researchers, Sarah and Rebecca Rebalili, the hammers of knowledge, for giving me so much good info to start to suck with. Uh, sucking another worldly topic next Monday, the New World Order. Oh, it's conspiracy time. It's been a while on Time Suck. It's been a while since we had a Monday conspiracy suck. Let's switch it up. What the hell is the New World Order that Alex Jones, David Icke, and other wackadoodles are always talking about? Where does this conspiracy about an emerging clandestine totalitarian world government even come from? What does it encompass? Why did I hear my dad and his friends talk about it too much in high school? Why do so many people online seem to be so very into it right now? Uh, the common theme in conspiracy theories about a new world order is that a secretive power elite with a globalist agenda is conspiring to eventually rule the world through an authoritarian world government, which will replace sovereign nation states and an all-encompassing propaganda whose ideolo- uh, ideology hails the establishment of the new world order as the culmination of history's progress. Lizards, does it involve space lizards? I don't know. I hope so. God, I hope so. At least a few lizards. We're going to find out next week. Uh, big idiots of the internet coming up next week. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be make up for the lack of one this week. Now, uh, time now for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. First up, wonderful Time Sucker. Jesse writes in letting us know that uh, Triple M has saved her. Not kidding. Michael McDonald saved her. For real. Yamo saved her. Oh, 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 Yamo saved her. Uh, Jesse writes, Dear Master Suck, the ambassador of the Mushmouthers. Oh, so much today, right? And the head missionary of Nimrod. Hail Nimrod. I'm writing to you today because I wanted to tell you how you and your love for the Triple M <laughs> made me realize that I was not in a good space and in an unhappy relationship. I found you originally on Pandora and became obsessed with your comedy. Yes. And I would listen to you while I did housework, which was a constant job since I was the only person in the house cleaning, cooking, and taking care of two puppies. Do not let Lindsay ever listen to this. Then I heard your ad for your podcast, and I started to binge. At the time, I lived an hour from work, so I would, uh, I would listen to you uh, through my long commute and eventually while I did housework. What struck me the most from your podcast <laughs> was your rendition of Triple M's I Keep Forgetting We're Not In Love Anymore. The more and more you kept laying down those sweet, sweet lyrics, the more I realized I was not in love anymore. My relationship was falling apart, and I was willing to ignore it because we were comfortable. The more I tried to ignore it, the more you seemed to keep singing in my ears, I keep Forgetting we're not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. Uh, eventually, I couldn't ignore my situation. My depression was going nuts. My anxiety was having a field day, and I wanted to be happy. I finally packed up my stuff and left. I am now a hundred times happier, visibly happier. Found someone who makes me happy. And getting back to my strong, independent woman status that Lucifina would be proud of. Hey, Lucifina! So in conclusion, never stop triple us because you might be shaking someone awake, realizing they are not in a situation they would like, or maybe even scarier, in a situation where they might not be safe. Master Sucker, thank you from your disciple of Mushmouthers, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, Hail Lucifina. You, yeah, you can be independent. You just, you just got to try. Some see the road as clear. Mm-mm. Some say the end is here. They say it's a hopeless fight, but I say I got to try. I think I rushed that. I think I fucked it up. That was a lesser known Michael McDonald song. It's, it's harder. It's harder for the rhythm. You know, 
I actually wanted to go with Jesse's girl. Da-na-na, da-na-na, Jesse's girl. Which also doesn't make sense because you're Jesse. You're the girl. Ah, let's get on to the next message. But I'm glad, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad you're doing well. And I'm glad uh, some Michael McDonald helped you out. Next up, Joe motherfucking Bojangles. Guessing that's not his legal last name. That's what he said in the email. And Joe is a ghost believer. Uh, regarding me asking for real supernatural encounters the other week, uh, Joe writes in saying, I absolutely believe in ghosts and spirits. I have a lot of stories I'm going to tell, but uh, the first one, if you want, just share with the brothers and sisters of Nimrod. Doing it now. But whatever you do after listening, do not, and I repeat, do not look behind you. I just look behind you right now. No one right there. Uh, so growing up, I lived next to a graveyard. My bedroom was literally 20 feet from it. That's fucking sucks. Uh, it was nighttime. Oh, by the way, there's a graveyard uh, 30 yards from the Suck Dungeon, by the way. Not even kidding. Big-ass graveyard just directly across the street um, from where I am right now. It was nighttime and getting late. My cousin and I were heading to bed. I was in bed, and, my, uh, and he was on a mattress on the floor. I had a TV on my headboard of the bed, and we were trying to fall asleep. The TV turned on and starts flipping through channels. I say, Billy, turn the TV off. He says, Joe, I don't have the remote. It's not me. I find the remote next to me, and I think I accidentally hit it or whatnot, so we turn it off. Uh, turn it off. Seconds later, the TV turns back on and flips through the channels. I say, Billy. He says, Joe, I swear it ain't me. We both sit up, and I turn it off again, and the fucking TV turns on once more as I have the remote in my hand. We are getting fucking scared now. I said, fuck this, and unplugged it, and I swear to you that fucking TV turned on again after he unplugged it. Flipping through channels, we both ran out of the room to the living room, which you can, uh, where you can see uh, my room down the hall, just watching the TV flip to the channels. It finally stopped. We stayed in the living room all night and didn't sleep. Told my mom the next morning what had happened. She told us years before she had the same thing happen to the TV in the living room. And the whole not looking behind you thing before was just to fuck with you guys. Uh, but I do have the chills now. So in the same home, we had a lot of crazy shit happen. And not just to me, my mom as well and the neighbors around us. But I know I've seen a ghost. My mom told me when I was real young, I would have an imaginary friend like most kids do. Uh, I would answer specific questions to this friend and it would creep her the fuck out. Well, when I was about 16, uh, I woke up for school one morning. I opened my bedroom door and I looked down the hallway and I swear there was a little boy. No! There was a little boy in the living room by the couch just staring back at me. Scared the hell out of me. I slammed my door shut, got dressed, ran out the back door and went to school. Uh, same house again. I had a buddy stay that night. I had bunk beds and he slept in the top bunk. My mom had gone to work about 5 a.m. I woke up, went to the bathroom. I laid back down, started hearing footsteps down the hallway. Fuck. I knew my mom was at work. So I just laid there. That's the worst. I could hear the front door opening and closing, the sound of something banging against her washer in the bathroom and cabinets opening. Then something came in my room. Well, I got chills on my legs now. I got weird goosebumps on my legs now. This is awesome. Uh, something came in my room at this point. Um, under my covers. My bed started shaking like someone was hanging on the bedpost. All of a sudden, the footsteps run down the hallway. Out the front door. I get up, wake up my friend. We go to the living room, and the front door is still bolt locked. Call the police and my mom. Please search everything. There's no sign of a break and nothing taking, not a fucking thing. My friend never stayed the night again. Yeah, I wouldn't. So in my home I live in now, the day I signed papers to buy it, I had to meet my realtor an hour before my house to make sure everything was marked off. Uh, I got a little early and was walking around and I met my neighbor. We got to talking and he tells me, it's a shame about the old woman who used to live here. I asked, what is he talking about? And he goes in to tell me that there's an old woman that originally owned it who died in one of the bedrooms. Nothing gruesome, uh, but it was still news to me. Bought it anyways. It was October. Come December, Christmas Eve, I had my son who was five at the time. My mom came over and we opened presents. I then had to run to the store real quick so my mom stayed with my son. I get back and my mom has a weird look on her face. I ask her, what is wrong? And she says, Brady is scaring the shit out of me. Uh, we were on the floor playing and all of a sudden he busts, uh, 
it starts running down the hall. Yeah, bust out, starts running down the hall. I ask him what he's looking at, and he says, the girl won't stop staring at me. And then he just went back to playing. I've had quite a few things in this house happen, like hearing footsteps and cabins in the kitchen opening. My brother stayed with me a few months back, and it scared the fuck out of him. He's 6'3 and 260 pounds, doesn't scare easy. He was telling his girlfriend about all the shit he was hearing. Well, she was over. She didn't believe him. Then they were in my kitchen. She was mocking him, making fun, and something poked her out of her chair. She started to apologize and got the fuck out. <laughs> Once I saw her, she said, I don't know what the fuck is in there, but I'll, but I'll never make fun of it again. Well, I got more, but that's good enough for now. Hope you haven't pissed yourself yet. No, but I've definitely got goosebumps. I will, think, uh, I will say that I think of myself as a pretty rational, well-thought-out guy. I was an honor student in school, joined the Navy afterwards. Thank you. Uh, hold a pretty damn good job now. So I definitely believe, and I have no other answers other uh, than to what I've seen uh, throughout the years. Ah, okay. So that was uh, that was that was terrifying. But uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Joe, for for sending that our way, man. And uh, we got another believer now. We got Time Sucker Rocco also thinks ghosts are real. He writes in, "Hello, Master Sucker." Insert forty five other random badass titles. I've dropped a few emails. Uh, I, I've dropped a few emails and have since become a proud member of the Cult of the Curious on Facebook. Along with my wife, Danielle, what a fucking awesome group of amazing people. Yes, I love how much love the Cult of the Curious Facebook group keeps getting. Out fucking standing, he says. Uh, anyway, I don't know how much their stories were made up to make money, but I do have, re- regarding the Warrens, but I do have quite a bit of experience dealing with the Supernatural, or with Supernatural TV shows, excuse me. My biological father lives here in Fort Wayne and has been featured on several shows, to inc- uh, which include Paranormal State and My Ghost Story. I can say this for sure. Those shows were 100% flat-out bullshit. His house does have a gory past, and I have been sitting in it with him and her shit banging around on the second floor. Random footsteps coming down the stairs and the chandeliers moving around for no apparent reason. The shows are bullshit for sure because I've been there when they film. What they do is generally send a producer and cameraman, yep, and sometimes only a cameraman. They also like to send local paranormal experts who generally look like Dolly Parton fucked her cousin and had some weird mutant offspring to tag along to help find the ghosts. Uh, the cameraman will set up his camera and and uh, if you had a laptop or, you know, and, and, and I guess like an iPad with a script, you read from the script while he or she films, then they will move around the house to stage shots to go along with the script. How do I know this? Because I was the fucking ghost. <laughs> For his episode of My Ghost Story. Yeah, that's me banging shit around upstairs. You're welcome, viewers. Watch the Paranormal State segment called Satan's Soldier, my dad, and it explains the history of the house. The My Ghost Story episode, I can't remember the name, can be found if you search for Fort Wayne. Good money to be made if that's your thing and people believe in it uh, like it's gospel. If you read, please uh, this, t- please tell my wife, Danielle, that Rocco loves her. Oh, that's sweet. And I'm going to haunt that ass when I get home from work. Nice. Danielle, you're going to haunt that ass. You might have to get some of Woody's paranormal, re- paranormal repellent. He's coming for your hiney. Whee! Uh, shouts out to my awesome friends on the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Hail Lucifina, my brother, and keep up that outstanding fucking work, Rocco Ames. Uh, well, thank you for, for giving that update. Um, and that's cool, like, how you, you relayed that, A, uh, you know, what happens on those shows is fake in your experience, but B, you have heard some shit that is not fake. So that's, that's very interesting. Uh, very cool update now from t- uh, new time sucker Chad regarding the Candyman suck. Sometimes it's easy to forget that the people we talk about here on the suck, the victims of tragedies, are all too real. Uh, Garrett reminds us, writing, Hey, Dan, I'm a new listener. I found you via last podcast on the left. Just finished listening to the Candyman episode. Joseph Allen Lyles was my uncle. He went by Allen. I was born in 79, so I don't know him. However, I grew up hearing my aunts and uncles, seven of them total, and my father all talking about him and not knowing where he went or what happened. Always suspecting Dean's involvement. Yeah, Dean Coyle, the Candyman killer. They didn't identify 
his body until only about five, six years ago at High Island, I believe. I may be wrong about that. I'd have to ask my Aunt Donna. But I wanted to say, when you said his name on the podcast, I felt a bit of a chill go down my spine and then a sigh of relief that our family finally had closure when they identified and tied him to the many young men that were taken by Dean. Thank you for being thorough and giving Alan, if even if only a line about his abduction, a tiny voice. Uh, thank you sincerely, Chad Grizzly Lyles. Well, thank you, Chad, man. Uh, yeah, man, I try, try to, you know, we talk about horrific things, but try to be respectful of the victims and acknowledge, you know, what, what horrible things happened to them. Uh, now time sucker Garrett Shaponi writes in with another fun Ed and Lorraine Warren suck update. Uh, this is about this uh, legal case regarding the Stamboski versus Ackley uh, trial. Dear Suck Master General, I just finished last week's Suck. I got really excited when you mentioned Stambovsky versus Ackley. I graduated law school in 2017. This was my favorite case we read about in law school. Great explanation of the holding, by the way. However, I think you uh, have missed the opportunity uh, of reading some comedic gold in the form of a judge using legal language to shit all over the absurdity of this case. For example... Quote, New York law fails to recognize any remedy for damages incurred as a result of the seller's mere silence, applying instead the strict rule of caveat emptor. Therefore, the theoretical basis for granting relief, even under the extraordinary facts of this case, is elusive, if not ephemeral. Pity me not, but lend thy serious hearing to what I shall unfold. That's from William Shakespeare, Hamlet. Uh, also, from the perspective of a person in the position of the plaintiff herein, a very practical problem arises with respect to the discovery of a paranormal phenomenon. Who are you going to call as a title song to the movie Ghostbusters, asks. <laughs> uh, applying the strict rule of caveat emptor to a contract involving a house possessed by poltergeist conjures up visions of a psychic or medium routinely accompanying the structural engineer and Terminix man on an inspection of every home subject to a contract of sale. Uh, yeah, and that's the, uh, the, the legal language there. Keep on sucking. Uh, from Garrett, P.S. I went to your show in Washington, D.C. in last, uh, last June. You probably don't remember me, but I was the idiot afterward that mistook a Chad Daniels joke for one of yours. I remember you. And uh, yeah, I get that about once a weekend. Someone's like, ah, oh, man, I love your, love your passport joke. And I just, I don't even correct him. I don't want to make him feel weird. So I'm just like, yeah, thanks, man. And I think, fucking Chad Daniels. Finally, last message, another ghost message. This time from Charles Jordan. So many ghosts. Uh, Charles wrote saying, uh, hello, I have a picture of a ghost encounter to share. This image was captured by a trail cam set up to catch trespassers on my grandparents' property in 2014. My car in the background set the camera off as I was leaving. Both of my grandparents had passed in 2011, 2012. No one was living here any longer. Does this look like a lady in a dress to you? Also, another related story. A couple years ago, my girlfriend, now wife, Victoria, and I were removing grandmother's quilts from this house before they were destroyed in the abandoned property. Uh, while washing them and preparing them to be vacuum sealed for storage, my wife made a comment about how my granny should be happy now that her handmade quilts were being protected and what detergent would be best to use on them since they were old. After this comment, directly after a bottle of detergent, one of the free and clear brands that doesn't have any dyes or scents falls off the shelf. Happy sucking, Charles Jordan. P.S. This image is 100% unaltered. It is not photoshopped, edited, etc. It was taken straight from the trail cam as is. Now, I have posted this picture that I'm talking about. It is spooky as shit on my Instagram, which is at Dan Cummins Comedy. So if you want to check it out, go there. Thanks, everyone, for writing in on today's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, time suckers. Don't get stuck in a muddy, lice-infested, rat-filled trench while being gassed and burned by Germans this week. And keep on sucking. Uh, maybe like the squirrel nipples?
Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.